my fellow Westorians. Welcome back. We had a week off of not live. We had an episode, but it's nice to be back to live streaming. Nice to have Sean back and Ashea back because, you know, in those recorded episodes, it's usually just me. We get the whole gang this time. And a live studio audience today. And a live studio audience. Shout out to our good friend Dom of Folkwise, who is hanging out as well. Sean, how's it going there? I see you got a shirt with an arrow pointing at your yeah, eyeball. Yeah, some eyeballs there. Yeah, what's that pointing at? Yeah, what is that? Is that a Deadpool? Oh, it's Avatar. This is right? Avatar. Avatar. Oh, Avatar. Okay, cool. Yeah. The Last Bender Avatar. Last Bender Avatar. The... Nice. Yeah. And I just have a History of Westeros shirt on. I'm representing myself. And you don't know for a fact whether I'm wearing a shirt at all. That's true. Nobody I knows. Have. I do. Well, and our studio audience does. That's actually, maybe that's why we have a studio audience. Otherwise, I'm <laughs> sure. Verify. Shout out to our good friend, Nina. No word on what she's wearing at the moment, but she <laughs> writes at goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. That's with one L. And her latest blog post is on some comparisons between Louis the Ninth and Baylor the Blessed. Louis the Ninth was also very peace-loving, and she notes a couple of particular things they might have had in common that might have fit really well. Trial by combat and maybe how Baylor viewed it, which you could guess he wasn't a fan of, considering all his attitudes towards violence in general, and holding court in front of an oak tree, which happened, which Louis IX did in Accursed Kings, whether he did it in real life. Well, you might want to read Nina's blog to get more clarification on that. And whether or not maybe Baylor did something like that, since there is no heart tree, no werewood tree in the godswood at King's Landing. There is a heart tree that I think is an oak. So that could work out pretty well. Maybe Baylor would want to do that. Maybe as part of a way to push the old gods aside a little peacefully, kind of like the way Christmas was placed on the existing pagan holiday to kind of wipe it out. Baylor could do stuff like that, nonviolent ways to change the religion. Nina, she just says she's wearing a David Bowie t-shirt. What else is new? Yes, Dave, <laughs> Nina is perhaps one of the largest fans of David Bowie of all time. At least that I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this episode was voted on by patrons. It won out a couple weeks ago. We, of course, had to insert the Daniele Bellelli episode last week, which was great, but we're back on schedule. Our next voted episode, we're actually ahead now. We, we were doing our votes far enough in advance that we can tell you what's coming. What's Sean, next? We're going to be doing Thoros of Mir, a character study on him. That'll be fun. We're looking at some nice characters whose stories aren't so big that we would have to take multiple episodes. Like, we did an Arya episode. I mean, that would take <laughs> us probably four episodes to cover in this style, which is when we really want to look at the world through their point of view as much as possible. And it particularly works well for characters that don't already have a point of view, which Arya also already has that. We picked up Thoros, Aegon II, Rhaenys, as in the queen who never was, because I know you got to specify when you say Rhaenys, <laughs> and Ygritte. And Thoros was the winner out of that group. We'll probably be cycling types of topics for our polls rather than just continuing with what we had last week with two new choices added in. So we'll have a world building poll, sometimes a character poll, sometimes a theories poll, sometimes maybe a, something to do with the supernatural stuff, mystery stuff. We'll figure that as we go along. And y'all who are voters will help us shore that process up. So thank you if you are already a patron and you can get involved in those votes. Also, thanks if you're a subscriber on Spotify. We don't have the ability to include you all in the voting yet, but you know you have the choice to sign up either place, and we appreciate whichever one you support us on. 
What does it take to be a patron, by the way? I feel like it's worth a dollar a month or whatever to be able to vote in these polls. Is there levels? The lowest level we have is two. And I, I'm going to get rid of the $2 level because it's it's been around for a long time. And the amount you get for that too is increased. We have more and more bonus episodes. So I, I'm going to bump that up to five or four at some point. We have a $4 level also that gets you script access. But I haven't. So what do you get for votes? Is it a $2 level to vote? Any level can vote in the weekly polls. We have a higher level poll for scripted episodes that you have to be at the $12 level for, but those don't happen as often. But they do, of course, we put a lot more work into the scripted episodes. That's how that's going right now. So maybe now's a good time to get in before that that price change does happen. I'll get around to it eventually. (laughs) Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mm-hmm. And speaking of other episodes, did you know Martin's world is so robust that covering one topic often teases others? It's one of the naturally occurring brilliant features of his work that we lovingly bask within. We try to help out with that by suggesting other episodes on topics related to the one at hand that we've covered before. And as the months and years go by, our ability to point to our own episodes gets larger and larger as we have a larger and larger back catalog. There's going to be a lot of that today. Because, well, that's just how it worked out. So I wanted to make sure y'all are aware that we list those episodes at the end where you can continue if you're deep in the rabbit hole and want to stay there. Well, we give you tunnels to stay deep like that. Yeah, it's kind of like, like a recommendation engine at the end of it where you know, you're like, if you liked this, you might want more of these three episodes. Yeah. True. It, it's exactly, <laughs> exactly like, like that, that, but it's yeah. a little more personal, less yeah. algorithmic, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Also, at the end of every episode is the answer to the trivia question that we start the episode with. In this case, it's almost one of the easier questions because it can be narrowed down. Which of the Basilisk Isles, to George R. R. Martin joke, was his own location? Hint, this came while he was writing A Dance with Dragons. He made these jokes about how it was difficult and where he was at with it. So that turned into a joke that corresponds to one of the Basilisk Isles. So you could just look at the list of them and you'd have a one in seven chance of getting it right. (laughs) They are an island chain off the northwest coast of Sothorios, just north of it. Kind of looks like the Caribbean just north of South America. And that won't be the first time we make that comparison, but we'll make comparisons to other places as well. It's not one, certainly not a one-to-one comparison. The place itself isn't exactly inviting. It's hot, humid, high risk for disease. And the humans it has attracted over the years have been almost entirely the bad sort. You don't go there to raise a family in peace or to, I don't know, take care of the children. You know, no, no one seems to have done that. Not that we've heard of anyway. So the history of the Basilisk Isles, at least what we're given and can glean, starts all the way back in the Dawn Age, which is pretty cool. A lot of these areas around the world have this long history, and the Basilisk Isles is no exception. And it continues all the way until now. Victorian split the Iron Fleet into three parts when sailing towards Daenerys and Slaver's Bay. One of those parts he ordered to take the so-called Corsair's Road through the Basilisk Isles, more of a watery road in this case, but still. And it was one third of the Iron Fleet, so about 30, 33 ships, maybe 35 at most. And it lost two-thirds of its strength. 
even hardened Ironborn, some of the most dangerous sailors in the world, clearly they have to be worried about it. Some of the most arrogant sailors, <laughs> some of the most reckless sailors yeah. in the world. <laughs> you may have a point there, Sean. Yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'm overstating their their aptitude and understating their daring or their foolishness. Anyway, it does seem like a place you would want to be careful around. There are signs of ancient civilizations, which that's more cool than dangerous. But the dark gods they worshipped. Whoa, I would worry about that a little bit. Ironborn are familiar with their own dark god. They've got their own sort of creepy worship going on. So there's maybe even more they have in common. But the place has long been associated with piracy, but in some eras more than others. For example, it was less so during some of the times when the Valyrians and Giscari wars included the Basilisk Isles as a theater of war, kind of like a world war between ancient superpowers. Imagine like how World War II spilled into North Africa. Germans and French and other European powers were fighting in North Africa to try to control resources there that they could then put to use in Europe. Similar thing went on between the Valyrians and Giscari, so we'll go and get into that. Now, pirates don't exactly thrive in regions where military superpowers are sending large amounts of trained professionals. So piracy was probably less of a thing in that era where when the Giscari, but not, not a thing. There would still be things to steal and, and run off with. But it's been quite a while since anyone actually fought over the Basilisk Isles. The days of military superpowers fighting over them uh, are gone. Maybe that'll return someday. So they are, again, well-suited for piracy, in part because of that, but in part because of other reasons as well, which we will, of course, com- cover in this episode. So in summary, to get us started, sweltering, dangerous, numerous islands filled with pirates, monsters, ancient ruins, extreme proximity to Sothorios, and other assorted dark fantasy elements, they're like the stepstones on steroids in a lot of ways, more diverse, more fantastical, more dangerous, farther away from Westeros. That's one thing. But all of that and more in today's episode of History of Westeros. Here's a quote to get us started from the world of ice and fire. Named for the fierce beasts that once infested them, the basilisks have for long centuries been the festering sore of the summer sea, inhabited only by corsairs, pirates, slavers, swords, murderers, and monsters. The worst of humanity. They come from every land beneath the sun, it is said, for only here can such men hope to find others of their own ilk. Life on the basilisks is nasty, brutal, and oft short. Hot, humid, and swarming with stinging flies, sand fleas, and bloodworms, these islands have always proved singularly unhealthy for man and beast alike. Nina says that this may be an allusion by George R. Martin to Thomas Hobbes, the work Leviathan, where he says the nature of the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Ooh, yeah, that does that is similar language. And George would probably know his Thomas Hobbes. All right, so let's start with the islands themselves to set up the people and culture and plot lines and stuff. Like I said, there's seven named islands. Though if you look at the map, you could see more like 25. There are three all close to each other off the western coast that are arguably not part of the Basilisk Isles. They're kind of in between Nath and the western shore of Sothorios. Nath is definitely not part, but it does have some similarities, which we will get into some other day when we cover Nath on its own. And like Nath, this world, part of the world features flora and fauna that will kill you, not just butterflies. It's the deadliest place to live if you discount risk from people. That said, there's people there that will kill you too. <laughs> so <laughs> it's pretty bad. That said, there's evidence that some cultures have learned things to make it less deadly. Not undeadly, but less deadly. 
for example, we have to keep in mind that everything we're talking about through the Basilisk Isles is through the lens of Westerosi maesters. They haven't been there. They haven't talked to a lot of locals, if any. And there's probably tricks of the trade. People that when you live there, you know what not to drink and eat more so than random outsiders would. You know, I would never have walked near that tree, but this guy doesn't, you know, you're not from there. You don't know to not walk under the death tree. (laughs) I feel like there's a lot of that sort of inherited knowledge you would get from living in the area, not to mention inherited immunity from some of the diseases. Again, not all of them. As we'll see, there were diseases that came that just wiped out just about everybody. So clearly there's some things that even immunity can't cover, like the Black Plague, you know, like that's a good example. Something that happened in the real world where very few people were immune to that. So anyway, we'll, we'll talk about them individually and as a group. The seven named Isles, Isle of Flies. This is west to east. The Isle of Flies on the far west. The Basilisk Isles in general, I want to clarify, they are off the coast of South Roast kind of to the south of Valeria, old Valeria, the, yeah. where the doom was, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. They're, they're not far, in fact, from either Valeria or old Gis or new Gis, because new Gis is the closest part of Slaver's Bay to Sotorios. In fact, as we go through some of these islands, I'm going to point out some distances that might surprise some of y'all into how close it is to some of these other places. So Isle of Flies, almost due south where the city of Valeria used to be. So if you take a straight shot of sort of the central eastern portion of the Valyrian Shattered Peninsula. That's where the city of Valyria itself used to be. Almost directly due south of that is the Isle of Flies. Next over is the Isle of Tears, which is sort of a central position in there. It's featured steep valleys, black bogs, flint hills. It's very windy, which implies that maybe it doesn't have a lot of trees, although it does look pretty green there. All these look very green, like there's a lot of greenery on them. So maybe they're partly green and partly not. I imagine maybe the beaches are more windswept and some of the high places, perhaps, but the lowlands may be very forested or even jungly. It's the largest, as I said. It features the ruins of Gagasos. We have Talon. Talon is particularly interesting. It's shaped a bit like a Talon. George apparently likes this. He's got the, the fingers also. You know, he's like Talon, Claw Isle, <laughs> <laughs> the fingers. That's his kind of kind of his thing, I guess. It has Barter Beach on it. Barter Beach is like a pirate trading spot where they swap stuff barter. You know, I mean, you know what bartering is. I don't have to explain that. And But apparently it moves around a bit along with some of the other spots they have because they need to stay a, a, ahead of authorities or pirate hunters or what have you. It also has honeycombed caves, kind of like what hard home sounds like, but of course a much different climate. And these caves are fortified, maybe a little bit like what we saw in House of the Dragon at the Stepstones. Those weren't really that fortified. They were just, they would just go into them and hide there. But you can imagine those with maybe like a door put on or maybe some spikes or some some dudes at the front with crossbows ready to shoot anyone who's coming that's not on their team. Depending on how you define fortified too, it might include like supplied. Like in, Good point. in those caves, there might be food, weapons, armor, whatever. Bathrooms, you know, yeah. <laughs> All the stuff you need to hang out for a while. There's the Isle of Toads, which is, again, we're going towards the east from the west here. There's modern, the modern inhabitants of there might be remnants of a Dawn Age civilization. More on them later. It's a home of the infamous Toadstone, which we've referred to in a bunch of different episodes. It's made of the oily black stone and is super ancient and very Lovecraftian. It's closest of the seven named isles to Sothorios, which probably is relevant in a couple different ways. There's one called Howling Mountain. That one sounds like it has screaming caves like Hard Home too, doesn't it? I'm not really sure what else to make of that. 
Sounds rocky, certainly, Howling Mountain. I'm actually not sure which of them is Howling Mountain. It's not marked. We can kind of guess. It's It might be that one that looks kind of like Santorini, where it's like a, a crescent around a smaller thing. There's Skull Isle, which is uninhabited and the farthest north. And there's Axile, which is the farthest east and is shaped like an axe. It's directly south of New Gis. Given the likelihood that the maps of the Basilisk Isles are not 100% accurate, we can guess there are more islands, probably a lot more, probably all very small. You know, I don't, I don't suspect there's large ones missing from the map, but even that is possible. I'm not suggesting, yeah, a huge number, but that's possible. For example, Belize. Belize is a pretty small country. It's like 270 kilometers long, yet it has 180 islands. <laughs> I mean, whoa, or Hawaii. 120 smaller islands in the, among the eight major named ones. And I'm, all those other 129 ones have names, but you don't see those names on a map. They just can't fit them on the map. You don't really I mean, go to just, them either, but yeah. You're not even really allowed to travel to a lot of those. Yeah, places. a lot of them are like yeah. testing facilities. Yeah, that's or, where they do like bombing runs and stuff like that. So um, island is a pretty loose term in yeah. some of these cases. But still, it can be a place for a pirate ship to hide temporarily. We've talked about this in other episodes, especially when we're talking about islands and pirates. I bet the ones that are named are ones that boats can or larger ships can approach, yeah. right? A lot of the smaller ones might be almost insignificant because there's not enough land space or a boat can't land there. Less and also, I, bet, I will say, Sean, for some of these places where like you think about Hawaii, where they, you know, had very different types of sailing vessels, right? They had, like mm-hmm, boat, mm-hmm. like the type of boats they had, like a smaller canoe, you know, a, a t- kayak. And yeah, so many you could row versus a big yeah. Corsair or something. Yeah, yeah, so like some of those islands might have been more habitable to people with smaller sailing vessels, I guess. Yeah. Although I wonder some of those islands, if a tidal wave or oh, hurricane wow. comes, there's no shelter there or something, you just get wiped yeah, out. And basically. Another thought I had at all those smaller islands, one, I bet the pirates in the area, they do know the names of all those You're probably islands. right. They have a bunch of different names for some of them. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that different groups of people over time might have different names of them. But the ones you that call are that bigger... Cat Island? I call that Panther Island. <laughs> yeah, we even saw that with yeah, the Bear yeah, Island. Remember there was yeah. that one in the Russian River yeah. where the Chinese called it Bear Island and the Russians called it something else. But you can imagine like any discrepancy like that, the maesters making a map for Westeros, like, ah, just don't put a name on that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're like, ah, we don't really know. We don't really care. Yeah, you know, number yeah. three. Yeah, B3. Basilisk three. Yeah, yeah B3. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, they were located to some of what were the biggest nations in the world. Like that's that's a comparison to the Stepstones. The Stepstones are located to some nations that are big now, but maybe weren't so big 500 years ago. Back 500 years ago, and and even farther back, Basilisk Isles were next to the biggest world powers that have ever been seen, as far as we know. You know, I had that thought earlier, by the way, that I bet the the piracy around those islands was way bigger back when Valeria was like before the Doom. Yeah. Because it's so far removed from Westeros, but it was so next to that, I don't know, trade center, population, whatever. Where now the Stepstones, whereas Westeros has grown, right? In modern times, it's bigger. Valeria is gone. So now the Stepstones are more of a center for piracy than Basilisk Isles. Absolutely, yeah. So what you see more of in the Basilisk Isles is different styles of piracy. And you see different, like, structures and different authority. Like, if we're, we're one, one comparison we'll make a few times here. We don't have a lot of real-world comparisons in terms of people, but we do have some geographic comparisons. Indonesia and the Caribbean are the two main theaters I want to compare here. Indonesia's got like 1,700 islands and 1,300 ethnic groups and is the fourth most populous nation in the world. Basil's Gals isn't that big, nowhere near that big, but in a microcosm of that fits really well because I think it has similar weather. It is a melting pot, probably not 1,300 ethnicities, but it is does have a lot of diversity there. 
But it, more size-wise, it's similar to the Caribbean, I think. But even the Caribbean has a lot of these islands that aren't marked and named, and pirates know about them, the locals know about them. And, and over time, the maps have even had to change. And we're dealing with such a large span of time here, that's got to be in play as well. They're really far from Westeros, but not so far that people don't go back and forth from time to time. But they're, like I said, really close to Valyrian Slaver's Bay. The distance to the coast of what was once Valyria, the unshattered coast, is closer to the western Basilisk Isles than King's Landing is to Pentos. And Pentos is not far at all from King's Landing. I mean, it's a straight shot across, and Danny's right there. Tyrion's flight isn't very long. I mean, it probably felt like a long time because he was in a barrel. But <laughs> if we're looking at these things from a macro perspective, the distance from King's Landing to Bravos is about the same as Axe Isle to Astapor. We know there's a lot of slaving in the Basilisk Isles, but usually the slaving takes place in the form of they capture people and then go sell them in Slaver's Bay, or back in the day, they probably sold them in Valyria as well. So yeah, it's full of pirates and corsairs, which a corsair is a type of pirate in the real world. We don't really need to get into distinction because in the real world, the distinction has really been lost over time. It, technically, there were some people that were corsairs. It's really more a privateer thing than a pure piracy thing, but that is also a blurry distinction. So we don't need to get into all that again. The reason it has a similarity here is the slaving. The Barbary Corsairs in particular were Muslim Corsairs, and they were state-sponsored by the Ottoman Empire to capture slaves. They would go out of the Mediterranean to do this and go all over, including Iceland and England, and just really far out to capture slaves for the Ottoman Sultan and the Janissaries and all this other stuff. That was, of course, fueled by religion. They were sort of a subcategory of pirate. Yeah. But as time passes, they, they became a synonym yeah, for pirates. Yeah, so I think, what, and George kind of uses it pretty loosely, but I think trying to find a pattern, he's never called anyone from the Stepstones a Corsair, but he's called, he, he frequently calls the Basilisk Isles pirates Corsair. So I think it's probably sort of the way he leans. If you see the word Corsair, you probably shouldn't think Westerosi-born pirate, but you shouldn't go too far with it. He might have mean, mean it to imply a certain type of ship too, yeah, like a, a, that's a certain twist sort of a ship or whatever. That's a yeah. good point. But these dark gods, like the Toadstone and maybe the whatever's going on in Skull Isle. So there is a religious aspect here. These are <laughs> much more off the beaten path type religions than Christianity and Islam. But still, it's something of a similarity. There's a place called the Pepper Coast that has Corsairs. But we don't know where the hell the Pepper Coast is. <laughs> I don't know if it's in Sothorios or along near the Disputed Lands or who knows. It's the Salt Coast. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> yeah, you need salt and pepper. Yeah, like the Condiment Coast. <laughs> this of all places in Martin's world makes for one of the best role-playing game settings. Like if I was going to run a role-playing game, I have thought about doing that. And I said the same thing about the Gagasos episode. I said, this would be a great spot for that. And that's because the Gagasos episode is, well, Gagasos is in the Basilisk Isles. So, I mean, it's the same, <laughs> same idea, but we're expanding the theater quite a bit to the whole region rather than just this, that one city and that one Isle of the Isle of Tears. Piracy flourishes amidst islands for some kind of straightforward reasons like Try, imagine trolling a coast. Now imagine that there's islands along that coast. Every island has to be circled, right? So every island you add adds so much more time and so much more just total percentage of coastline. I used Indonesia as an example earlier, 1,700 islands. The total coastline of Indonesia is twice the circumference of the globe. Wow. So like, how can they ever, like there is still piracy to this day in Indonesia. Not a lot. But it's still there to this day. And you can see why. Like, it'd be hard to eradicate when there's 1,700 islands. Like, how are they going to patrol all that space? And we're talking, not, that doesn't even include the rivers. You go upriver, some of those empty out into the sea and just creates thousands and thousands more hiding places. Think about that when you think about the Basilisk Isles. Not only is it farther away, but it has this level of 
potential hiding and just untraceable criminal activity. Now, when the dragons were around, the game was probably a little different, huh, Sean? That probably changed things a little bit. Like, I don't know about a dragon chasing ships all the way across the summer sea to the Basilisk Isles, but if they did send dragons down there, any ships they caught out in the open would be toast, like, literally. (laughs) (laughs) But there's dense jungles and caves and hidden anchorages and harbors. Like, a jungle alone is a pretty good defense against a dragon. They just can't, all of a sudden, their visibility is gone. They can't see you anymore. I don't know. It feels like it would still be a pretty good hiding place. Like, as long as you're not caught out in the open. It might be a good hiding place, but the Valerians weren't particularly outward looking, right? Like, how often would they fly away out there to maybe catch some pirates? But they probably would patrol their nearby ports where the pirates might try to attack or ships coming out of it. The the dragons could patrol that area or maybe even escort particularly important ships or cargoes. Even if they weren't hunting them down in the Basilisk Isles, their presence in a world would still severely limit the ability of pirates. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I think also, but you're, you're right, you're really right to point out how inward looking they are and how like they often wouldn't have paid as much attention as they could have. The dragon lords were just so ridiculously wealthy that, I mean, picture a few ships lost to piracy is just like an, a thing on the accounting ledger. <laughs> it's like yeah, a, just a business expense. It's just a, accounted for loss. Yeah, they're not like, like, oh my God, they stole some three of my... 500 ships, you know, like, I don't know if that's really going to get him out of his throne. If they stole three of your 500 ships in your own port, then you might crack down in your own port. That, that if implies they stole like 30 of your 500 ships. Maybe they fly out to the Basilisk Isle. Yeah, but I agree. Yeah. So we got to keep these things in perspective. These guys were so wealthy that this might not even be a blip on their radar. Unless we were talking about like a pirate king or something that's that's like you said, 30 ships instead of three, that kind of thing. The dragons probably did prevent the rise of truly large pirate towns. In the Caribbean, there was Nassau and Tortuga and Port Royal, which were pirate towns. Those were difficult for the English and other quote-unquote civilized nations to stop, partly because of where they were located. Like, Nassau was amazingly perfect for pirate activity. It had a huge natural harbor that could fit 500 ships but it was too shallow for warships. The pirates could just sail in there and the warships couldn't follow them and they could only bombard from a distance. I feel like that's a similar thing here. There would probably be some spots where a dragon could come in and like an aerial assault and torch a town, but some of them would be just like too surrounded by jungle and the, the dragon wouldn't have a place to strafe even. All they could do is hit some already very wet trees and that wouldn't do very much. <laughs> or if the there's a system of caverns and the, you know, the... The Howling Mountain or whatever, the dragons have a harder time getting in. Great point. And they would be aware of the dragon, so they would take steps. We're like, well, we're not just going to sit out here in the open where a dragon could get us. Yeah, I would think that would prevent like a real city from developing, unless it was like an underground city. But we, we don't hear of anything like that. But it wouldn't prevent, you know, four or five random pirates acting on their own on a small scale. And to the perspective of Valyria or, or a port in Valyria, that maybe they hardly notice or care. But it would still be a huge adventurous story to follow one of these ships in a Basilisk Isles. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> it would still be devastating to the one poor merchant whose ship did get attacked, even though it was unlikely or whatever. Yeah. So the climate weather, let's talk about that briefly, because that's a really important aspect of it. I don't know where the equator is on Planet Toast, but I think it's around the summer sea, like south of Valyria, in between, maybe near Sothorios. In, in, in er, on Earth, it's like it cuts through the Amazon rainforest, heads east across the water into Africa, where it cuts through Congo, which is another rainforest, and it goes east into Indonesia, which is full of jungles. So all the rainforests are on the equator, basically. 
on Earth. And so where we see the jungles in Planetos is where I suspect the equator is as well, or roughly close to it. So what that means, if we can make real world comparisons, is it's very consistent temperature. Like it varies more from day to night than it does from December to June, (laughs) which is kind of like, whoa, really? Yeah, that's how it works. And there's just massive rainfall almost all the time. Even the dry season isn't really dry. And some of the areas don't have a dry season at all. I think Westeros and Earth are also pretty similar in that most of the deserts are also along the equator. There are some exceptions here and there. Rainfall is as big a factor as heat or equator presence. But but like Dorne is right in that same area too, right? Yeah. Which is a desertous area. Absolutely, yeah. And, and like the Caribbean has a lot of what we call tropical savanna, which is along the tropics, so near the equator, but a lot of it's kind of dry, which maybe some of the Basilisk Isles have that partly, like the ones that sound windswept might be like that, but I still think more of like South Florida, Northeast Brazil, South Thailand, maybe, you know, like really hot, humid Miami, you know, that kind of thing. You got to be careful not to go down too much of a rabbit hole on these fringe topics. But I I started to (laughs) with this weather. And even in the Caribbean, there's a huge range. Some of the islands have 20 inches a year and some have 80 inches a year. It's like a huge And they're not even that far apart. Yeah, it's wild. And of course, the, the amount of like forest they have has a lot of impact on that and the wind patterns. Because it opens a range for yeah. the Basilisk Isles. Yeah, you're yeah. totally right. So we don't we don't have to think of them all as the same. We don't have to like, well, this one's hot, so this one must be. Well, they're they're all supposedly hot and humid, but that doesn't mean they're all exactly the same level of hot. It's important to think too. There's probably storms. There's probably like monsoons or whatever the equivalent is. But George doesn't use those terms. There's no word. There's no word typhoon or monsoon in his books. He just uses like various storm. You know, a severe storm or not. <laughs> we can assume that happens. Hurricane. There. I don't think he even uses hurricane. Pretty sure we looked for that, me and Nina looked for that and looked for like all these different synonyms. And I'm pretty sure Hurricane wasn't on there either. So here's a quote from Fire and Blood from when Sir Eustace Hightower was stranded on the northwest coast of Sothorios, which is going to set up some of what we think is going on in the Basilisks. We were there for a full year, he told his grandsire, trying to make Lady Meredith seaworthy again, for the damage was greater than we'd thought. There were fortunes to be had there as well, though. And we were not blind to that. Emeralds, gold, spices, aye, all that and more. Strange creatures, monkeys that walk like men, men that howl like monkeys, wyverns, basilisks, a hundred different sorts of snakes. Deadly, all of them. Some of my men just vanished of a night. Without a K, of a night. (laughs) (laughs) The ones who who didn't began to die. One was bitten by a fly, a little prick upon his neck. Nothing to fear. Three days later, his skin was sloughing off and he was bleeding from his ears and cock and arse. Drinking salt water will make a man mad. Every sailor knows that. But the fresh water is no safer in that place. There are worms in it, almost too small to see. If you swallowed them, they laid their eggs inside you. And the fevers... Hardly a day went by when half my men were fit to work. We all would have perished, I think. But some summer islanders passing by came on us. They know that hell better than they let on, I think. With their help, I was able to get Lady Meredith to Tall Trees Town and from there to home. The Basilisk Isles don't have quite that level of nasty as the mainland of Sothorios does, but it has some of it. And just a little of that is real bad. 
These were West Rossi, though. Again, we got to keep in mind that they don't know the place as well. They're naive of it. So Eustace believes the Summer Islanders know it better than they let on. So let's extrapolate. The Summer Islanders, knowing more about Sartorios than Westeros does, first of all, I believe that entirely because they've been a sailing people for far longer, and it's closer. It's just closer to West. They're closer to Sartorios than Westeros is. So there are two factors there that make that very straightforward. They might even just be more familiar with tropical or whatever climates that even if not yeah. those exact aisles, they might still know, Hey, you need to boil the water. First. You're totally right. Cause they live on the same like latitude. They're due West of the basilisks. So you're totally right about that. That makes sense. So they would understand that, but plus if they understand Sothorios better than Westerosi do, they probably also understand the basilisk aisles better than Westerosi do. And going even farther, the locals would, of course, understand it even better than Summer Islanders do. So they, this is where I was getting, well, the, they know what trees to not walk under and what flies are a big deal when they bite you. <laughs> it's like, that is something to fear when that fly bites you. What lizards to not look in the eye. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and all these other stuff. So again, so all these things of like, where well, everyone who goes there dies. Well, all people who aren't from there, that might apply to them, but we can't apply that to the locals. In my head, there have been a small but significant number of Summer Islander adventurers who have gone to Sothorios and or the Basilisk Isles and gotten rich. We, we hear that's possible and that it's been the death of so many other adventurers, but I bet there's a higher incidence of success among Summer Islanders and even higher incidence of success among some of the locals, perhaps in greater numbers, though. They might have a harder time keeping it unless they leave. Because, <laughs> again, not a good place to, like, retire. <laughs> so, like, if you, you sit there with wealth, someone else might come and take it. Like I said, I think the Basilisks are more like Indonesia, climate-wise, but also people-wise. Because, like, when you think about Indonesia being the fourth largest country in the world, China being the largest, and India being the second largest. Well, Indonesian pirates and Chinese and Indian pirates who went to live in Indonesia, well, that's the fourth largest nation in the world, its pirates are preying on the first and second largest nations in the world. The scale is so much larger than Caribbean piracy where you're like, yeah, Blackbeard's crew was like 40 guys. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so you have to keep that. And you also have to throw out these Western notions of democracy amongst pirates and meritocracy. Like that's not how it worked in the East nearly as much. You had a lot more obedience and authority and you do what I say and what I say goes and more of that, more of that style, which I think is more fitting for the basilisks because you have people who migrate from places that have that sort of culture like Karth and Giscari and, and things like that, where they're, and heck, democracy is nowhere in, in Planetos anyway. So that wouldn't necessarily have been a thing regardless. Us Westerners sometimes think of piracy that way. And it was probably more accurate when thinking about the Stepstones. It's, I think it's less accurate here, but your mileage may vary. Again, we're just kind of, this is our interpretations of it. So I think associate pirates are more thought of like Eastern pirates of Earth. Let's talk a little bit about what a basilisk is. What we're going to do, a little fun thing throughout this episode as we go through it in history, we're going to kind of think about where the basilisks would have been. Where there have been real basilisks later on? When did they die out? And maybe they didn't die out. Maybe the maesters are wrong about that, just like they are about giants and the children. Like, they can't even get right the extinct species on their own continent. What? How do they know the basilisks are all gone on the basilisk isles? Come on. It's interesting to think there's other similar fantastic sort of things in different spots around the world, too, like those black stones. Yeah. And people with webbed, you know, fish-like features or whatever, right? Aren't those, like, 
spotted around yes, different places, including in the world. here, <laughs> each of which, including here, yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, so tell us a little bit about real world basilisk, Sean, and we'll then we'll apply that to Martin's basilisk because they're not they're not that different. "Quote unquote real quote unquote, real legends of basilisks." <laughs> yeah, because it's a mythological thing. The, the the more I read about it, the more clear it is, and this is even like supposed by I don't know historians or whatever. The, it the idea of a basilisk probably came from misinterpreted and exaggerated stories coming from India or Egypt about cobras, probably king cobras specifically. And it's a story that's grown into telling, like the earliest descriptions or references we have start off with like, oh, it's a snake. And eventually it's, they have six legs and a chicken head and fly and breathe fire. You know, it (laughs) got more and more dangerous over time. But here's a quote. This is a a Roman historian, uh, Pliny wrote about a basilisk. He said, being not more than 12 fingers in length, it has a white spot on the head, strongly resembling a sort of diadem, like a crown. A diadem is like a crown. Yeah. But when it hisses, all the other serpents fly from it, and it does not advance its body like the others, but moves along upright and erect in the middle. So imagine someone trying to describe a cobra, a king cobra. The word basilisk comes from small king. And so if there's this cobra that has something on its head that looks like a crown, you can imagine a story being told and, and how it gets interpreted and retold over time. So much of it just lines up when they're trying to describe how it walks upright. So I'm like, oh, it must have legs. And so yeah. <laughs> it's like, a well, snake how, how with else? legs yeah. and it has a big head like a cobra does and it has a crown. And cobras can like spit. Some cobras can like spit their poison and that might become like the ability to like look at you and kill you like the, the <laughs> Medusa sort of attribute Range that it weapon. has. Uh, you, you can see uh, another part of the mythology is the only thing that can kill it is a weasel, which kind of like mongooses would kill cobras. Weasels are like a oh, yeah. more European equivalent of a mongoose. But, you know, it, it, over time, they go from like a little snake to being bigger, like the size of a lion. They can fly. There's even a, a cockatrices, I think, were more of a Celtic legend that probably got blurred into this, which are also like a lizard with chicken wings. It can look at you and kill you. In addition to all that, it is worth pointing out, there is a real, an actual lizard called a basilisk. And it's probably also named similarly a basilisk because it's in South America. This is the lizard that can run across water. And it's just the, the, its weight ratio to the webbing of its feet or whatever allows it to scamper across water really No, quickly. it's because it turns the and, water to stone and then runs over it. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, it's called a Jesus lizard, yeah. which Jesus... That's also a king, yeah. king lizard. You can uh, also see how that probably got its naming. But, you know, probably Europeans coming across probably named it. I don't think it was named a basilisk by the ancient <laughs> Incas or whatever. But, <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> but apparently cockatrice and basilisk are almost synonymous. It might depend on like what geographical era or time period you're talking about, which word gets used to describe which image of these lizard, bird. They also appear in the new revised English Bible. They get mentioned and in Shakespeare. Shakespeare refers to, to basilisks as well. Leonardo da Vinci wrote about oh, them cool. too. <laughs> they appear in D&D. D&D uses some of the more fantastical elements. They get rid of the bird-like aspects, but keep the multi-leggedness and the venom and the Medusa gaze. But acid spit in place of fire breathing, which is probably closer to the, the snake origin stuff. So in A Song of Ice and Fire, first of all, there's been several kings of the Basilisk Isles. Now, given what you just told us, Sean, if you're the king of the Basilisk Isles, Basilisk meaning small king, you are the king of the small king isles. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> they pop up a lot all over Planetos. They're in depictions and in actuality as well. They are a real thing <laughs> in Planetos, unlike our planet. They're amongst the many creatures on Dragonstone brazen beast masks. Some of them are basilisk. 
Maggie the Frog just has a basilisk brazier. Danny actually sees one at a small gaming pit killing a big red dog, which I've reinterpreted this moment after we heard George talk about the signing story with Clifford the Big Red Dog. Oh, <laughs> I wonder uh, if this basilisk yeah. was tearing apart Clifford. Yeah, I think I think you're probably exactly right that George was working through his resentment towards Clifford the Big Red Dog. There was a story where George went to like a big signing and he thought that everyone was there for him. And everyone was there for Clifford, the big red dog, who was like, there was an actual fake Clifford. And so he, he didn't feel so special after all. He was totally upstaged uh, by Clifford. Yeah. So, yeah. This might have been him getting revenge on Clifford and the page of his book. So again, you learn something new every time you reread. <laughs> it's worth mentioning now, because I don't know if you have it in the document, in terms of talking about like iconic basilisks. I think one of the most famous is Harry Potter. A lot of people in the chat have brought it up. Yeah, I don't know that one. The second book, the the main big monster is a basilisk, and the basilisk is just a giant, huge snake. that It looks like an eel. It looks like an eel, kind of, that just, like, kills you by looking at you. Uh, But relevant to that in terms of, I think, I think the most iconic basilisk in all of media is probably the Harry Potter basilisk. Okay, cool. Nina also points out that basilisks are distinguished from snakes in... Planetos, because there's a couple examples like, quote, stinging flies, venomous snakes, wasps, and worms that lay their eggs beneath the skins of horses, hogs, and men alike. That's separate. Wyverns, basilisk, and a hundred different sorts of snakes was in the Eustace Hightower quote. And Kago from The Windblown, he wears a cobra mask, a brazen beast mask, where there's other brazen beasts are wearing basilisk masks. So that's clearly a, a distinction there, at least within Westeros and Essos. Being able to tear a dog apart does kind of imply a big jaws or powerful claws or something. I need to suggest maybe something like a raptor, a little bit of raptor-like quality to it, like a dinosaur quality. They can get up to about the size of twice a lion. 2x the size of an adult lion. Twice a lion. Yeah, so yeah, that's I was going to say, what kind whoa. of lion? <laughs> yeah, what kind of lion? Are we talking about a great lion? lion? Are we talking about a regular lion? <laughs> good, good question. So yeah, you're right. The, the ancient great lions that are extinct now, yeah, twice their size. Yikes. That's even bigger, yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised, though, if like everything was bigger 10,000 years ago. <laughs> there yeah. were some really All huge battles. <laughs> yeah. There would have to be some big things for them to have been eating or... because. Uh, it's hard to imagine something else eating a basilisk. Like, how is that not an alpha predator, given its venomous <laughs> bite, its poisonous spit, its size? It's, yeah, like, what eats that? <laughs> you know, like, I definitely Me. don't want to fight that. Me. A shea fights that. Okay, so <laughs> I was going to say a human. It. I'll yeah. eat a human. That's, I, I, truly, a human. That's what fights and eats that. And, yeah. <laughs> not just any human, just a shea. A shea <laughs> is the alpha predator. Jeez, I eat basilisk for breakfast. <laughs> That's more of a dinner meal. Just, <laughs> well, I, I, I can tell you've never had it. So yeah, see, I'm, I'm showing my naivety. <laughs> you have cockatrice here. for breakfast. You know, have you ever heard like waking up with the, the cock as the cock crows or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> I don't eat once or twice. I eat cockatrice. <laughs> <laughs> the, <laughs> basilisks are also uh, supposed you to eat infest. Cockatrice? <laughs> yeah, whoa, whoa, hey, this is not how I intended to reveal that information. <laughs> They're supposedly all over Yt. We mentioned that at the time when we talked about Yt. Sothorios and Yt are both known for jungles. So again, this kind of suggests basilisks prefer jungles. We haven't heard about them anywhere else, which is also a suggestion about the nature of the basilisk isles themselves. If basilisks only live in jungles, and we're not entirely sure what the terrain on the basilisk isles is or was, well, this implies lots of jungle. And if they're less jungly now, well, maybe that's partly why there's less basilisks there now. They lost some of their habitat or a lot of their habitat. 
There have been multiple attempts at colonies on Basilisk Point, which is on the mainland of Satorios, which is you know, near where these other places are. They all failed. And the reason I point this out, though, is it wasn't because of the basilisks that they failed. They didn't fail because of monsters. They failed because of the disease and the brindled men and the worst dangers. Like if it were just the basilisks, they might have been OK with that. But the basilisk isles were part of the problem, too. Basilisk venom gets extracted. Pycel had some or has some. Well, no, had some. He's dead. But his collection, it's probably still sitting there. Tyrion saw it there when he was checking out Pycelle's poisons. Nina says, the Komodo dragon venom in the real world prevents blood clotting in its victims. Maybe something like Basilisk's venom does that too, where it prevents blood clotting so you just bleed to death. And yeah, that would make sense. Basilisk blood might be worse than Basilisk venom though. Now this is something that sounds pretty supernatural. Not that basilisks aren't that already, but this in particular does. Remember, Jock and Hagar gives what's probably basilisk blood to Weez's dog at Hall, and Weez had raised that dog from a puppy, and it turned on him and killed him. And that, apparently, a mouse will attack a lion when given basilisk's blood. We're told that. It comes up a few times in the fandom as a theory. People are like, hmm, is that why there was a riot? And there's a couple of different examples of riots where someone's like, maybe the, maybe Basilisk blood was added to the city water supply and it got people all fired up. Maybe something like that. There's room for something like that. Usually I think the reasons given for the riots are strong enough, like the one in King's Landing and Clash of Kings is because everybody's starving. I don't think you need more than that. But hey, we can't dismiss it out of hand either. Moving on to the people of the Basilisk Isles. As I've said, there's no one native race there. There were some aboriginal people there, but they're kind of long gone and they're not, maybe they may not be entirely human. So there isn't really an ethnic identity. It's a variety of immigrants and colonists where I pointed to Indonesia doesn't have an ethnic identity necessarily because there's so many ethnic identities where this one is there isn't one native and it's all transplants, except for, you know, there are people born there, but you probably don't see a lot of like, fifth, sixth generation basilisk islanders, you know, like that just, it doesn't seem very likely, especially because there's been time periods where it kind of had a reset. A lot of the population was wiped out and was abandoned. So you see a mix of Carthine, Roinar, Nathi, probably, Summer, Islander, Valyrian, or at least people that have Valyrian blood from back in the day, because obviously Valyria isn't around anymore. Old Gis, same thing. There'd be a lot of Giscari blooded people there, probably. People from different free cities, depending on the era, and some Westerosi, of course, people from the Shadowlands, probably people from E.T. I mean, just everywhere. We've talked about how Valyria is kind of in the center of the known world. Well, Sothorios is just south of that. So it's kind of south central. <laughs> Sothorios is the <laughs> south central of, <laughs> of Planetos. Uh, I would guess that a good chunk of Euron's crew is from the Basilisk Isles. I mean, he's got a diverse crew. They're supposed to be from all over, and that is the Basilisk Isles. And Straight out of talent. <laughs> nice Nina writes it's interesting to speculate what knowledge of the former native civilization of the basilisk isles might remain in in like a oral tradition or written down by like the summer islanders like there's probably nothing written down by the natives there but by maybe people other than Westerosi might have some sort of histories like old explorers from the summer islands or things like that there could be some really interesting things written down there you know like books that we just aren't aware of just like there's Lots of books on Indonesia that I have no access to that I would love to have the knowledge of for this episode. There could also be an oral tradition in the Summer Islands, whether it's That's true. You know, their own knowledge and stories of it or knowledge and stories they got from people there that they brought That's on. That's a good point. The Summer Islanders are pretty well known or known to keep track. They do have their talking trees, which are visual histories. But that's more of their own people. But still, their history would include contact with other people and other places. So that, that could include some stuff. 
anyone who's living in the Basilisk Isles or goes to there surely is aware of Sithorios. We got that quote from Eustace Hightower, but less a custom and more a common form of human greed is slavery. And we know that the pirates and the corsairs of the Basilisk engage in it like so many other places around the world. But this is, again, this is a place where they're captured, not a place to rear and train and break people to the whip or what have you. This is a place to capture them and sell them in markets elsewhere. The unique aspect is in who they're capturing, though, because some of the people in this area, as we said, they're, they have, may have origins that are not entirely human. Here's a quote that gets this all set up for us. There are riches hidden among the jungles and swamps and sullen sun-baked rivers of the South, beyond a doubt. But for every man who finds gold or pearls or precious spices, there are a hundred who find only death. The Corsairs of the Basilisk Isles prey upon these settlements, carrying off captives to holding pens on Talon and the Isle of Tears, before selling them to flush markets of Slaver's Bay or the pillow houses and pleasure gardens of Lease. The fragility of these settlements is obvious. I mean, we've described all the challenges facing someone setting up on the Basilisk Isles or on Sithorios's coast. So that brings the predators, the slavers. They're like, ooh, weak people, let's go get them. I mean, that's, that's what they look for. But what about these other riches? What about besides that can be gleaned from human profit? What about the gold and the pearls and the precious spices? That would be very tempting for people from all over, but especially locals who maybe have enough to get going, but not enough to be wealthy. That would be like, well, of all the ways to make a fortune in this world, just right next door is Sithorios that supposedly has quite a lot of this. And they, of course, would have more direct information than what the Westerosi histories would say. Like, oh, just vague ideas of lost cities and gold and gems. And well, they would have more specific details, more locations, more regional ideas, more memory of the place amongst the people that they know. Minor point, but I always find it interesting that spices are listed along with gold and pearls. But in the real world, like, you know, hundreds of years ago, before we had more homogenous, modernized cultures and transportation and everything, pepper was one of the most valuable things on earth. Yeah, I mean, that's like, true. It, it, all the food that people ate pretty much was what was within a few miles of them. You know, now we just get lasagna for dinner and sushi for lunch and just any food, anytime, any spice is just at the grocery store. But there was a time when People were bored of the same old potatoes day in and day out. And being able to add pepper or garlic was a special, valuable thing. You know, you have to eat all day, every day. It's like yeah. it's been a part of human life and culture forever. And so new flavors and new spices were as, literally as valuable as gold. The Silk Road was built off the transportation of pepper from India to Europe. We're probably more like, and you're probably right to bring that up because that is probably more accurate to this scenario, this setting than, than our world. Like maybe that's why the Pepper Coast is, this location is unknown to us because they don't want anyone to know like, ah, keep <laughs> it's so valuable, keep this away. But yeah, like there would be people that know where certain things grow. A good example, like maybe they don't know where the gold mine, a gold mine is or where some ancient lost city is in Sithorios, but they may know, hey, my uncle found a spot where wild cloves grow or nutmeg or something, which you're right. Like today, that'd be like, eh, whatever. But now it's like massively valuable. And gold would be more difficult to, quote unquote, harvest, to get Good out of a point. mine and onto a ship. But when you just gather up plants, you know, that's way more lucrative. A bag of, of cloves a, is so much lighter than a bag of gold. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Totally true. So you can see why, A, it's so dangerous and B, why it has such a draw. There is an enormous amount of wealth in this place. And that's why people keep coming to it, despite the dangers, despite the likelihood of death 
despite the lack of cities and civilization and all these other things. But also there would be the reverse engineering of that. Like if you're from Westeros and you're doing what we just said, you're like, surely these stories are somewhat exaggerated. Because how accurate can their information be? That might be what you tell yourself <laughs> to get a little more confidence about going there in the first place. Like, yeah, how bad could it really be? Basilisks, come on. You know, what is that really? There's no basilisks. Those are all extinct, right? Yeah, there's no giants. <laughs> there's no dire wolves. It's something too like basilisks, which even if they're real, it's something that's easy to be an exaggerated mythological story. But even if they're real, it's still something that's, I don't know, you feel like you might be able to deal with it. I'll shoot it with an arrow. I'll look out for it. We'll stay on, whatever, whatever. But scared away with fire. Yeah. I don't know. What do you do about like deadly amoebas or whatever? <laughs> like you don't have an understanding of how yeah. or why the water will poison you and what to do about it. If you're the Valyrians and you got these dangerous mines full of gold, well, that's not dangerous to you because you're sending slaves in there to suffer for that. And it's the same thing here, I would think. Part of the reason there's so much slaving in this region is you can use slaves to send them into the green hell and what bring back the loot. You know, it's just like it's just like Euron sending slaves to Valyria post doom or to blow his horn. Yes, yes, exactly. It's super similar. Like think of all the glory you'll get. Just go on that island and bring back all the clothes. <laughs> the clothes. Surely the clothes survived the doom. Yes, <laughs> they just got a little blackening to them there. They're a little charred, but that makes them tastier. Yeah, blackened cloves. Mmm, delicious. Okay, let's take a short break. And we'll come back with a lot more about Sothorios, including the ancient times and the war wars between Valyria and Old Gis, and lots of other good stuff like what's happening there now in current times. We've been talking about Smile Brilliant, our, our sponsor Smile Brilliant for the last few weeks now. I can switch it up a little bit because I can put my money where my mouth is. Quite literally, I've received my products from them. I got my mold. Oh, your teeth are molding. Gum. My teeth are molding. It's totally backfired. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and so I get to give a firsthand account. I got my little plastic molds. You fill it with a plastic syringe that fills with the whitening product. And the Smile Billion tray, it fit really well. It nicely didn't rub at all. It wasn't uncomfortable. And it, you let it sit for 45 minutes to three hours. I did two hours on my first one. And about two hours of my second one, I wanted to kind of see how it goes and I have 12 applications. I'm starting a before and after. It doesn't look a whole lot different, but I've taken pictures of my teeth so you can kind of see. We'll see next week. Yeah, we'll see next week because there's not, I've only done two so far and it's hard to tell. So we'll wait till we get a little farther along. I just want to describe the process to this point. They also send you a kit for desensitizing afterwards because it can hurt. It did not hurt me. I wasn't toughing it out. I wasn't like, ah, I can handle it. No, I didn't feel a single bit of pain, not even slightly. It's not fun to have goo in your mouth, but it's worth it. It's totally worth it. Short time, then it was done, took it out, easy, very simple. Clean it, brush your teeth, you're done. So my first experience was very good. We're going to continue following along. If you want to join this journey with me, or if you want to follow along and then jump in after you've seen more results, totally cromulent choice. I would, I would probably do something similar if I were y'all. But if you want to jump right on it and go along with me, that's great too. Smilebrilliant.com. Save 20% with the code Westeros. Get those white teeth and healthier teeth. Be more confident with your smile. Tara Incognito wants to know what you're drinking, Sean. Is it some sort of swamp beverage? Are you drinking Multiple some sort of... Multiple people ask you Oh yeah, lots yeah. of people. It's the, the green naked drink mixed with the coconut pineapple sparkling ice mixed with the app Red Bull. Oh, 
It looks like something you might find in the fresh water of the Basilisk Isles or Sothorios, honestly. Quote, unquote, fresh water. Yeah. <laughs> it does look like that. Some pretty, pretty some, murky drink. There is some murk in there. <laughs> Jack N says, has it been Gogosos this whole time and not Gorgosos? It was spelled as Gorgosos in some earlier prints of the World of Vice. That's what my clarification, that you are as Jack yep. N was correct. Exactly correct. There were early prints where it was Gorgosos. That's right. It is. Yeah. It was also called Gorgai. That's not a mistake. It was called Gorgai when the Giscari founded it. And then when the Valyrians captured it, it was renamed Gogasos. But George did. Yeah, it was written as Gorgasos several times. But the official way is Gogasos. Hey, maybe some of the locals pronounce it Gorgasos. We can, we can headcanon it that way. <laughs> I bet. I bet that comes from... I, George might have changed his mind or meant something different. I don't know. But a Gorgon... Oh, is yes. a snake Gorgon. with a, like a human head that turns you to stone if it looks at you. Like a Medusa or a I wonder if he had that same idea in his mind of that same sort of basilisk. Uh, yeah, he's like, oh, this is too close. The whole like looking around the room and naming what you see is your name kind of joke. He's like, oh, let's change it a little bit. It's not Gorgosos. Ranabir Mitra says, on a different note, is this episode's topic going to delve into Aziz's love for the Pirate History Podcast? Well, Sean is also a fan of the Pirate History Podcast. Yes, shout out to our good friend over on the Pirate History Podcast there. Yeah, I'm a long, long, big fan of his show. It's really good. I'm not going to maybe make any specific references to it, but I've definitely learned things that I'm speaking to here. Like, I learned a lot about how piracy works from that show. And that is definitely in play here. But I, I don't know if I have anything specific to say. Uh, he hasn't covered Indonesian piracy yet, but he has covered the Barbary Corsairs. And I did learn a lot about that from him. That's a really good stuff. By the way, it was really good. We were watching that in conjunction with Black Sails, which is a great show yeah. about pirates. And also, Daniele Villelli had an episode on the Pirate Queen in China, who I was thinking about that earlier, like the, you know, the potential, how, like how big and successful or powerful a pirate can become. She controlled like the whole South coast of China like it was she was as powerful as most countries she in the world beat were. the Chinese yeah. Imperial Navy yeah at sea like, in a pitched battle yeah like what yeah. <laughs> they basically conceded to her they're yeah. basically like okay fine just what do you want yeah we'll just do whatever you want she's yeah. like you can reach like what can we get you to stop she retired yeah she retired with, with honors and got to keep all her money and ordered her crews to stand down and they did like again this is what I'm saying when I say you like it's different Eastern piracy like the way authority and obedience works just different. Yeah. Like what, Eastern pirate, like Caribbean pirates, if Blackbeard retired, you think his crew's gonna be like, yeah, we'll retire with you, Blackbeard. Hell no. <laughs> they just find a new pirate captain to, to travel it or elect one of their own. Mm-hmm. That's the one to prop up Danny Valelli. But I, I think part of why I like him so much is because he chooses such interesting topics. <laughs> oh yeah, right. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Like he actively tries to find like the weirdest, craziest stories and characters from history and does deep dive. Into Definitely. Them. Like I got- last week ep- week's episode, Sean. I never asked you. Yeah, cool. No, yeah, I watched it. and I loved it. Yeah. Well, I hope yeah. everyone checks. It was it fun out. to be able to get in the chat some too. Yeah. yeah, that was fun for me too, being in the chat, getting to talk to people because obviously I don't get to do that very often. <laughs> <laughs> now that said, about Chin Shi, the Chinese pirate, maybe some of maybe the, some of the stories are exaggerated. That maybe some of those pirates did keep on pirating even after she said stand there. But the fact that any of them did, or that a large number of them just said, "Okay, we'll retire too," is like, wow. Yeah, <laughs> like just shows how powerful she was and how much they listened. And yeah, just different, different stuff. Let's go all the way back to the Dawn Age. As we get a little more specific with our coverage, we did climate, weather, people, geography, things like that. Now let's get a little more into the weeds. Here's a quote. Ruins found upon the Isle of Tears, the Isle of Toads, and Axe Island hint at some ancient civilization. 
But little is now known of these vanished men of the Dawn Age. If any still survived when the first Corsairs settled on the islands, they were soon put to the sword, so no trace of them now remains, save perhaps upon the Isle of Toads. Yeah, you wonder that these ancient civilizations probably worshipped this toad, this Isle of Toad. Well, maybe not, don't wonder about it. They almost certainly did. Again, this is Lovecraftian. We covered it in the Ib episode, the Ib episode with Grey Waste Tim, as well as in the Great Emperor of the Dawn episode where we talk about the various connections to deep ones and things like that. But I wonder how they know these were Dawn Age civilizations. I wonder what it is about these ruins that say, okay, Dawn Age, whereas as opposed to some other era. Because obviously they lack archaeology. So what is it about, maybe it's because it's super, super old, so they just assume it's Dawn Age or it's pre-Valyrian and they figure that the Valyrians and the Giscari got in there pretty early, so anything before that must be Dawn Age. I don't know why they think it's Dawn Age. They might have some, I don't know what word to use, premature archaeology. Like they might know that they, they might be able to recognize, we know this stone was from this time period. Mm. And we can see the amount of wear it has compared to other stones. Okay, yeah. So, and it's a, a similar stone for another one. Now, they might easily still be off a thousand years, but they're making their best guess, and it might be close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not doubting it. I'm just I'm wondering what methods they used for that. So these folks definitely lived in the there are basilisks era rather than the there are no basilisks era. So if you think it was tough, you think it's tough now with all the things we described, all the, the perils and dangers. Imagine back then when there were also definitely basilisks <laughs> and as well as all the difficulties of living in proto-human eras when, you know, no one had built anything yet. There weren't roads. People hadn't even invented ocean-going sea vessels. I mean, life was hard, you know? A little more on the toadstone. Here's another quote. Y'all, some of y'all have heard this quote before, but it bears repeating because it's creepy and cool. The people of this isle are believed by some to be descended from those who carved the toad stone, for there is an unpleasant fish-like aspect to their faces, and many have webbed hands and feet. If so, they are the sole surviving remnant of this forgotten race. Not so fast there, maesters. The webbed hands are seen elsewhere, like on the sister man, Godric Borel. Davos encounters him directly. That guy has webs on his, on his hands and probably on his feet. So maybe this is a different origin for their webbed hands and feet. Maybe they don't all have a common ancestor, but I'd be suspicious about that. If it's some undersea race, maybe even the same thing that the Ironborn have a connection to. Of course, the Ironborn don't have the webbed hands and feet thing, so maybe not. Still, the idea of undersea races perpetuates. <laughs> it doesn't go away. And this is one of its strongest evidences for existing. The toadstone may be a real creature or just some imaginary being that they think lives under the water. But it's a little odd because a toad isn't an ocean creature, you know? So that's it's like, hmm, was this... I don't know what to make of that, but it is serves to make it even creepier and cooler. And you wonder what kind of shipping existed back then. And when this Dawn Age civilization happened, surely they had like rafts and the ability to probably get from Basilisk Isle to Basilisk Isle and, and to the mainland of Sothorios. But going across the open ocean to Old Gis or Valyria, probably not. But eventually, eventually, yes. And you wonder what would have been happening. Like, was there early like proto-piracy back in those early days? Was piracy happening even back then? Probably. I mean, there's really ancient piracy in the real world. 
back in Egyptian times and like when the first histories were written, there were pirates back then. There were pirate, there were kings that targeted pirate groups like on ancient Crete or in Roman times. So yeah, I think so. Probably as long as there's been any sort of seafaring, it's kind of like wondering, did people steal back then? <laughs> yeah, people have always, right. as long as there's been people that people have been, as long as there's been ships, have done immoral things. Yeah, yeah. once there's, once ships started, people started stealing with them. <laughs> you know, almost, almost yeah. immediately. The first ship was not a pirate ship, but maybe the second one was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the black stone is not just on the toadstone. It's not just on the sea stone chair. It's not just at the base of the high tower. It's not just in the five forts. It's also on Axe Isle, which has some of these black stones that this guy's Andaro Zor, who was Carthine, he found some of those stones from an older fort and built a new fort with them. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Nina wonders if Axe Island has any similar to Battle Island, considering that also has the black stone at the base of the high tower, if that's some sort of connection, if that's Great Empire of the Dawn era stuff. Quite possibly, quite possibly. Something apocalyptic may have happened it's to separate all these things, to shatter that culture, to end the undersea domination of land, of, of the land peoples. Maybe they had their own great civil war under some underwater apocalypse and all of a sudden the masters from beneath the depths stopped ruling the, you know, they just stopped issuing commands and the people on shore were like, are our old watery masters gone forever or we better put up a toadstone and worship it just in case. I'm just guessing, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So of course, there's also those big black stones are inland on the Zamoyos River at the city of Yin, which is a cyclopean ruin of large black stones that is so evil that the jungle won't even grow into it. It's untouched by the jungle. The jungle just won't penetrate it. <laughs> so, yikes. Creepy. Antithetical to life of all kinds, including humans, because people have tried to live there and that didn't work out either. Hmm. Again, you can really see the role-playing game potential <laughs> this region offers. It's <laughs> just so awesome. Just the imagination runs wild. Here's a little bit I wrote for this part, a little semi-scripted bit here. One common element is that all people seem to be disgusted by the fishy people, by these fish aspect, whether you're from Westeros, Essos, whether you're a Corsair, a Baylor the Blessed, it's unnatural. It's supposed to creep you out, no matter who you are. And part of why George used it, borrowed this from Lovecraft, is because it it is that creepy. <laughs> it is really like this. Is, it's very unnatural to mix fish with people. <laughs> I mean, that's just wrong. Like it doesn't, even when you like dress it up in mermaids, even mermaids are creepy to me. Like even Daryl Hannah looks nice, but that's still creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Splash that they put a real friendly face on that, you know, but still the idea is like, Ooh, I don't know about this. They really made it look nice. But when you really get into it, it's creepy. As human cultures begin setting out in sailing vessels capable of going out of sight of land, the Basilisk Isles would have been discovered by peoples farther out. It seems likely enough that the Giscari or Summer Islanders were the first outsiders to come upon it, but it could have been people from like Morak or Ashai or Yeti or even Karth. If so, none of those endeavors made it into the Westerosi histories. They may have been swallowed up, whatever colonies they tried to start may have been swallowed up so thoroughly that no one even remembers them. But these fishy people have appeared in so many places around the world that you can't just say, oh, they all come from this one region. They, they, they popped up on islands all over the place. Like, how did they spread so far so early? Well, if, if it's a seaborne origin, that would make sense. The travel becomes a lot more easy to understand. 
So there's a lot of time here we have no info on. From We're going to basically from the Dawn Age of the Basilisk Isles all the way up to when Valyria and Old Gist started fighting over them. We don't really know what happened in between. Presumably, lots of Corsairs slash pirates coming to these isles, establishing bases and getting creeped out by the locals, killing a lot of them, maybe all of them, although not entirely all of them since there's still a few of them left. And I'm guessing this era of Valyria and Giscari hegemony over the region happened roughly around the Age of Heroes of Westeros. So before the Andals, but maybe not, maybe after the Long Night. Maybe this is post-Long Night. So this could be, maybe that makes more sense. Yeah, I think, I think after the Long Night, which is, of course, also still before the coming of the Andals. It's worth noting, by the way, that even if the fish-like people were there 10,000 years ago. And it, it, thinking about how they could have already spread around the world so long ago. Well, they might have existed 10 million years ago. Yeah. Like the, the evolution <laughs> of the creatures is way longer than the histories of them. You know? That's a great point. Yeah, like this could be super, super old. Like our, our ability to fathom how much time Planetos has had upright you know, bipeds or whatever, or the closest I mean, thing even to that. in our world, right? Yeah. Like our histories, most of our known histories, I don't know, five or six, maybe even 10 or 15,000 years old, but still humans were evolving hundreds and hundreds of thousands yeah. of years before that. That's true. So. That's true. We know we have, yeah, there's Neanderthal villages that are 200,000 years old that, we've, that have been found and yeah, stuff like that. You're totally right. So, and we have very little to go on with that other than, well, we know they were here and they're, you know, people who are a lot have advanced degrees, could tell you a lot more about it than I could, but... <laughs> okay, so Valyria and the Giscari Empire fought five wars. They didn't always just go head-to-head, though, right? Like, fighting, you know, I send our, our army west, you send your armies east, they meet in the middle, and they fight. And of course, that's not how it works. They go to certain valuable places and fight over those things. They wage war like superpowers. You're like World War One and World War Two. You go other places to capture huge amounts of resources, other territories, subvert those resources towards your war effort. So your enemies go to try to take that away from you, either to remove your use of it or to take it for themselves. Valyria and the Giscari Empire were exactly like that. The Giscari apparently went there first. They founded Gorgai. More information on Gorgai in our Gagasos episode, which is a patrons-only, subscribers-only episode, our most watched, by the way, of that category. And it was captured by the Valyrians after the Third Valyrian War. And it had been Giscari for two to 400 years. This is a lot like the Caribbean, where the Spanish were getting huge amounts of wealth out of the Caribbean and bringing it back to Europe to fight wars there. And so the English were like, stop that. And the Dutch and the French were like, stop that. So they started stopping the Spanish and taking some of it for themselves. Go back even farther, and the Romans in Carthage were fighting over Spain <laughs> for that same reason, because of all the silver mines there. It's almost like the Spanish, it's like this national traumatic memory of their country being destroyed and looted for resources by two great superpowers. So they go out and do that, you know, a thousand years later to a power that's farther west of them. Carthage and Rome go west. Spain goes west to the New World. Yeah. Anyway, humans are great, aren't we? <laughs> and inv- <laughs> it wouldn't be surprised if either of both sides used something like the privateer system. Like Valyrians were like, all right, well, we've got Giscari ships going in and out of the Basilisk Isles, bringing wealth and slaves. Anyone who wants to ta- attack their ships, you've got our, you know, state spot, we'll give you a, a doc- legal document. That sounds pretty rational, right, Sean? Like a strategy, like one or both sides could have used that. Like there's no guarantee that they did. It's just logical. Get everyone on board. Get all your private citizens to fight the war and get them bought in and say, yeah, you can get loot and anything you capture is yours. Yeah. 
especially if you can get pirates that were attacking your own ships to attack your enemy's ships. <laughs> Double you whammy, know? yeah. Whether you do it by just condoning it, where you, instead of trying to hunt them down, you just redivert them. But you might even help supply them, right? You might even like, hey, do you want a second ship to work with? Do you want some... <laughs> We'll give you some swords or whatever. Yeah, we'll agree to let you land in port and sell the stuff that you give you a market. Yeah, because that was always the thing for pirates, like having a place to sell your goods. Like that was one of the things that if you can't catch the pirates, you can catch shut down their markets. It's the same thing with any criminal endeavor. Like you need a if you're someone who steals things, you need a fence to sell your stolen goods. You can't just go on eBay. Well, you can with some things, but (laughs) I would know I've stolen them. (laughs) But uh, yeah, you probably have. Valyrian privateers, maybe Gisgari privateers when the Valyrians started also shipping in and out of there. So both powers have an interest instead of just one of them. And uh, this is probably still in the, yes, there were basilisk, living basilisks at this time. We're not that far forward in history. I doubt their environment has been destroyed yet, if, if even that happened. So think about this. Let's put ourselves in the boots of an ordinary Valyrian soldier Maybe a slave soldier, because that would be kind of ordinary for Valyria, unfortunately. Preparing to attack a city or settlement controlled by the Gascari. You've landed on your ship on this island, and you're preparing to besiege this weird-looking, creepy city. It's nighttime. There's all sorts of creepy things out there. All your comrades are discussing all the creepy things they've heard. Like, yeah, did you hear uh, Joe or Joe Ares would be his name or Valerians after all. Joe Ares was carried off by a basilisk last night. You know, like that kind of rumor would just spread through the camp by a what now? (laughs) What is that? (laughs) Yikes. Yeah, Yeah, it was twice the size of a lion, actually. Like what? And it and two people tried to chase and it spat poison on them. Like, (laughs) excuse me? Just the being the war part alone would be terrifying enough. Like you're having to storm city walls, climb up ladders against like defenders who are trying to kill you because you're trying to kill them. Throw in basilisks and these diseases. I mean, it's terrifying. Can we go back to just getting clothes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now flip flip that around though. You've got the Giscari who are in the city. They're like, yeah, they may have gotten used to the idea of basilisks, used to, as in <laughs> it's a danger they've heard about enough that they're still wary of, but maybe it's, it's not new. They, 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 they've, they've compartmentalized that danger in their mind a little bit, <laughs> but they still are faced with, oh, an enemy invading. And what happens if, we're, if we lose? Then we're out there in that wilderness. Oh, and there's dragons coming for us too, because this is Valyria. Like both sides of this suck pretty hard. <laughs> and yeah. Throw those basilisks in the mix. And yeah, I don't know. Like, what are, are basilisks drawn to armies or are they driven away by like, what, what, what is a basilisk like? What's it? Does it sun itself on a rock? You know, what, is, what does a basilisk do with its downtime? <laughs> Lots of questions here. <laughs> Sharpens its teeth. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just gets bored turning mosquitoes to stone. It's like, everything that's how you track a basilisk you find lots of like small stone animals (laughs) just in its track and its trail that was part of the the lore of it by the way that its gaze would wither plants and that's how you knew that a basilisk said how you could track it or find its lair because the plants are all around and be withered oh that's cool that makes sense yeah i guess it's similar with medusa just her cave was filled with statues and I guess with the basilisk, they, they, come un, they become unstoned. That's how the basilisk eats them. It becomes flesh again in their stomach or whatever. I don't know if the basilisk turns you to stone. It just poisons you to death with its gaze. 
Oh, uh, I think so. some versions of the Basilisk have the Medusa gaze, but it's a milder version yeah. where it just you don't turn to stone, but you start to freeze up. And you can <laughs> see how this, like a poisoned snake bite, would paralyze you. It would be like being turned to stone. You can yeah. see how the mythology grows. That's a good point. So let's move forward a little history. Once Valyria defeated the Gascari Empire, there would be less military focus in the region. Maybe more economic development, but not much because mostly they're just exploiting the region. Again, like the Spanish in the Caribbean. They, they would do the bare minimum of actually putting people there, but the maximum of bringing the wealth back home. And I feel like that's a pretty similar thing, especially because there's just there, there doesn't seem to be that many attempts to start cities there. There were some. Valeria tried cities elsewhere. There were some on the mainland, but they wanted to get the wealth out and whatever worked. I think that would be the bottom line for them. This is likely when Gagasso started to rise because it was the only city that lasted in the region for any length of time, at least in this era that we know of. But the Valyrians used it as a penal colony. It wasn't like a trade center or a market town. It was a punishment zone and, and a place where they used, they experimented on prisoners. Some of the worst blood magic stuff was done there where they would force slave women to mate with animals and use blood magic to facilitate that process. And yeah, I say people are great, but the Valyrians, they take it to another level. <laughs> you know, we're just, ooh, beacons of humanity, these folks. Because of course they were doing all this for humanitarian reasons, right? Yeah, yeah. The Valyrians are closer to gods <laughs> than humans. And you know how, <laughs> I think stories of gods are about as bad as stories of humans. So. Yeah, uh, that's pretty true. Yeah, <laughs> like you read about the Greek gods, you're like, God, these, these people are assholes, man. They're so <laughs> terrible. <laughs> So they could have done more with it, but they did this. They did blood magic experiments on people and animals. And again, probably not a, an era where a lot of progress was made in hunting the basilisks to extinction. It doesn't seem to be high on their list. Because the reason you would do that is because people, to protect the love. You know, you don't want your friends and relatives and townsfolk to die. But it's all expendable human capital to them. Maybe they hunted basilisks and made them to people to do their blood magic experiments. Yikes. Only half joking on that one. Yeah. Hmm. But if you are a blood mage, seriously, a basilisk would probably be something you want to study. It's got multiple types of poison, the blood with its insanity causing and all that. Yeah. If you're a mad scientist archetype, you're going to want to study that thing. Interestingly, that was another part of the lore of basilisks. It, it was supposedly, I don't know, alchemists or whatever had these ideas that if you like add powdered basilisk blood and vinegar to copper, it turns it into gold. And, <laughs> uh, there was a Saint Magnus, what I wrote his name here, Albertus Magnus, who was apparently a, a doctor of sorts, you know, a, a scientist who was sainted. And he believed that basilisk ashes and silver would combine to make gold. Where do they even get these ideas? Yeah, where like, did he like, get his basilisk ashes There's from? not even a basilisk. <laughs> yeah. Oof. By the way, this is good material for a D&D adventure. Again, you're right. This is the D&D the, the stuff here is just, or any RPG. I want to hunt for Basilisk so you can turn silver to gold, and, but you just can't look at it or whatever. Yeah. Mad quality. Yeah, that would be a great adventure to send your, your players on if you're a DM and they're just like trying and it's like, nope, that didn't work. You're like, yeah, but I put the ashes and the silver together. Like, yeah, <laughs> didn't work, yo. It's still silver. They don't know about the vinegar. You put the silver and the ash together and you still have silver and ash. They're both still <laughs> the same. Yes. Again, this was a really long period of time. The state of affairs of Valyria sort of having hegemony without declaring outright rule over the basilisks would have lasted a long time, like maybe, maybe thousands of years. 
And so the more people, the fewer basilisks, probably. You know, out there flourishing around these human civilizations. They might be doing just fine on the mainland, but I, their habitat being removed. I'm figure, I feel like that's probably the most dangerous thing to, to most creatures. It's habitat loss. I mean, that is, that's what caused a lot of the largest animals on this planet to lose their status is habitat loss. Oh, loss. Or just I, regular loss. No, I just thought you were saying the word laws. Oh, for, laws, for laws. Yeah. I was like, wow, habitat law, huh? That's like really scary. <laughs> Similar to bird law. But it's <laughs> yeah, a broader really, spectrum. I really had my mind spinning on what you were possibly talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Even a gradual lowering of the basilisk population over such a long period of time would make a difference. Just even a slight lowering of their presence would eventually result in them being gone, at least on the islands. But again, I'm not, I'm so skeptical that they're gone off the islands because of what I said about the giants and the dire wolves. Like, if the maesters are wrong about that, like, how would they know about the basilisk cows? Like, well, who's telling them this? Where is their information coming from? And also, like, George probably would rather have basilisks still around. <laughs> you know, George, the way George yeah. tends to go with these things, he's like, yeah, let's keep the basilisks. <laughs> If he's writing stories it's, there, he's like, yeah, let's throw in a basilisk. It's not uncommon in the real world for a species that was thought to have been extinct to reappear. That's true. You know? So society has had extensive active effort and technology to discover and track you know, species for 100 years or whatever. And we still are mistaken sometimes. Yeah. So there's no way the maesters back then who haven't even been to this island <laughs> really know. <laughs> <laughs> One reason to think that basilisks might have been gone by the later Valyrian era is that they don't get mentioned as part of Nymeria's story, though it's far from a certainty that they would. That's not the kind of omission that we can really bank on being super meaningful. But this is a good milestone to talk about. Nymeria's people came to the Basilisk Isles. We discussed this also separately in our second episode on Nymeria, of which there are only two right now, but there are more planned eventually. It's called 10,000 Ships. They, at first, just tried to stop by to get provisions in the Basilisk Isles as they were passing through, kind of like Victorian's people were. And these are refugees, not ironborn, so you can see why they might have had some trouble. What happened was three of the kings of the Basilisk Isles, which is, again, this sounds like ironborn. You have three kings on different isles of this small area. You have the king of Axile, the king of Talon, and the king of Howling Mountain, who were all at war with each other or just not friendly with each other. They all set aside their differences, we're told, to turn on the refugees. Because again, if you're a slaver, refugees out of nowhere is like gold washing ashore. You know, it's, it's awful to think about, but it's totally true. Like they sell people and here's people that can't defend themselves just appearing as if from nowhere. They're like, yay, money. The three kings fought Nymeria and her people for a little while. They reached a stopping point between their hostilities and negotiated. The three kings offered them a deal you can live on the Isle of Toads with the Toadstone and these creepy fish-like people in exchange for yearly tribute. On the surface, that might not be so bad, but the tribute they wanted was people. They wanted children. Yeah. <laughs> and like a lot. They wanted like 30 a year or something boys like and, that, right? 30 boys and girls each, yes. Which, yeah. yeah. 15, no like, problem, possibly... but 30? That's crazy <laughs> I don't know. That's just too many. <laughs> so not only is the Isle of Toads probably not a good place to live anyway, because if it was, people would probably be living there already. But the tribute was just a big nope. They just left all together and went, Dysothorios, which also didn't go well, and then noped out of there as well onto Dorne, where they ended up. N Nina says, seems like a riff on the myth of the Minotaur, where King Minos of Crete demanded that Athens send seven boys and seven girls at regular intervals to Crete, where they would be devoured by the Minotaur in the labyrinth. Absolutely sounds like that, and I totally agree with that comparison, because again, 
Crete was the first nation to engage in anti-piracy measures in the Mediterranean and like maybe this is pre-Trojan War era. And they may have turned rather piratical after that. They were like, hey, we, we cleared the seas of pirates. You all owe us money. <laughs> and then it's okay, the tax is going up. The tax is going up. But then, yes, and eventually they were maybe, le- Nina calls this a legend, but it may have really happened. The, Cre- the Cretan kings may have started demanding human tribute. Yep, sounds about right. They settled in Sithorios for a while, like I said, but they left and, and they were all, not only were they suffering some of the same problems that usually happen there, like disease and basilisks would have been on the mainland, but they were also raided by slavers which probably came from the Basilisk Isles because they knew they were there. I mean, the Axe, the kings of Axe, Isle, Talon, and Howling Mountain knew about them, obviously. So that's probably who that was. So after the Doom, let's move forward to that, re- that era, became a regular endeavor for Volantis and or Lys to, or maybe even one of the farther out free cities to send fleets to sweep the Basilisks of Pirate Activity, sort of push back against them to stop their pirate towns from getting too large, to send them into chaos, to slow them down a bit. You couldn't get rid of them. You can't find them all. But you can reduce their capacity for harassing you and your allies. Presumably Valyria was doing this too. So when they, but they, because they had all this money and wealth, and like we said, the dragon lords were probably doing this a lot on their own personally, but they were surely sending ships to do this on their behalf as part of their line item ledger that we're talking about. Well, how much money do we spend on anti-piracy? How much did we lose to pirates? I'm sure they were, you know, looking at it as a cost-benefit analysis type of thing. So that had to have changed. The prolling of the area was probably weaker with Valyria gone. Although in the short term, Gagasos benefited greatly. They're like, hey, we are no longer just a penal colony. We're now an independent city-state. They were the 10th free city for a while before they met a premature end. But it was set to be like this dominant power in the Basilisk Isles that just, well, the Red Death happened. So more detail on that, again, in the Gagasos episode. It's pretty darn cool. George, again, his world building is just so amazing for setting these side stories up. One example that we want to talk about here, this name's come up a few times, not just the first name, but even more so the last name. One time, the Lysene sent a big fleet to sweep the Basilisk Isles. Think of the Cretan example. Once uh, Sathosan was the man they sent. Sathosan, yes, Sathosan. He went to do this. He ended up joining the pirates instead, or rather taking over. One or the other. Not clear what he did. He took over. He became king of the Basilisk Isles. So he was king of the small King Isles for 30 years. This calls to mind a quote from Davos. When a pirate grows rich enough, they make him a prince. And he's thinking of Salador-san when he thinks this. So I'm pretty sure that's what happened with Sathos, Salador's ancestor, is that could be what happened when, with Sathos. He went there. He was given a fleet to do this work. And so he goes there, fights the pirates, probably captured so much loot that he's like, should I really give all this to the state or should I just keep all this? Bribe my command, the other officers who were high up in the command structure so they'll go along with it and just stay here. And yes, that is exactly what he did. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. There's a historical parallel here. The English privateer Jack Ward, who is 
often cited as the inspiration for Jack Sparrow from, <laughs> who, of course, he was not a pirate of the Caribbean, though. He was a pirate of the Mediterranean. He was one of these Barbary Corsairs. He was one of these guys that was a, you know, white Christian that flipped and worked for the Turks. He worked for the Sultan, the Ottoman Empire. He changed his name to Yusef Rais. <laughs> he did. He did convert to Islam, though. It was probably just a political move. It's not likely he really cared that much about the faith itself. Ward eventually commanded an entire Corsair fleet for the Sultan and retired with honor and extreme wealth to teach younger Corsairs. He became like a Corsair educator to teach them how to Corsair better. Jack Ward and Safo San both put a big dent in the notion that crime doesn't pay. <laughs> it paid big time for them, but that's in large part because they were also supported by the state in the first place. They were like, the state gave them this big boost in the first, but gave them a fleet to work with. And they did basically either kept the fleet, like in, in Ward's case, the fleet kept pay, was paid, continuously paid for by the Sultan, who was obscenely wealthy. Or in San's case, he just took all this loot from pirates who had taken it from other people and kept it for himself. So Ward may have eventually died from plague when he was old, like 70 some years old, which may have been how San eventually died. After all, that is how a lot of people in the Bass of Skiles die. So. Anyway, that's pretty wild. We did say that the Basilisk Isles wasn't as afflicted as Sothorios by plague, but less isn't none, and we're talking about really bad in Sothorios. So just even a fraction of that is still very scary, very intimidating. So yeah, late in the century of blood, 77 years in, in fact, we're given a pretty specific date as far as one year is a specific date. The Red Death spawned in the slave pits of Gagasos and spread through the rest of the Isle of Tears and then the rest of the Isles and the Basilisks quickly altogether, depopulating them almost entirely in one fell swoop. Nine out of every 10 people died. And surely amongst those who did survive, they're not like, oh, I'm safe. I bet they left too. They're like, I'm not pressing my luck on this. I'm getting the hell out. I'm noping the heck out of here in case this disease gets me eventually. So even if they didn't necessarily leave, they still might not have lived, right? Like, yeah, it, you know, if you have a village or a community of 50 people and 45 of them die, you know, yeah. one of the ones that lived might be a two-year-old child that doesn't have parents to anymore. And, you know, that yeah. there's no longer a woodcutter or a blacksmith or all the different things. They just can't maintain that society anymore. It's not a functional so they don't community. Die of the disease, yeah. But they just starve to death or just, they're just become borderline wild people living in the woods and not really a town or a civilization anymore. You know? I hear that. Yeah, you're totally right. Nina writes, what's interesting to me is that unlike Valyria, which was almost literally smited out of existence by the doom, Gagasos only, quote, only saw its population wiped out by the Red Death. Theoretically, at least in the immediate aftermath of the Red Death, Gagasos's actual possession should have still been more or less intact, horrible as they certainly were. While I'm sure various pirates and adventurers have probably made off with anything explicitly or obviously valuable in the three centuries after this plague, it's possible that there are still artifacts of the Gagasso civilization in the ruins of the city that could bring new light to its existence. Yeah, if someone were to take an archaeology mission there, yeah, you could find some pretty creepy stuff, probably maybe some wealth, but also like evidence of blood magic practices that happened there. Some pretty strange skeletons you might find, some bones that don't belong to any animal of natural origin. Yeah. Which adds to the whole aspect of it being a melting pot. Rather than having a whole ethnic identity, you also have like perhaps the produce of weird blood magic experiments that might also just be walking around. 
And you have like the brindled men who are living in Sothorios and po- occasionally pop up in fighting pits and things like that. We're not entirely sure what they are, but they're not entirely human. They can't mate with humans kind of like the Ebenese. So they're another race. Maybe, maybe not, maybe kind of like Neanderthal where they're, they're close. But yeah, but I, that's another topic. But those people would be around the Basilisk Isles as well, or people that maybe have some of their bloodlines or something. Not entirely clear. Likewise, in the Caribbean, and probably in Indonesia, there were natives long before the big global powers came in and started doing their awful stuff. But they were overwhelmed, and they don't have a lot of written history or cultural history that, that's, at least nothing that I could find easily. You know, it's not the kind of stuff that you, you need, like, real anthropologists and archaeologists to, to get into that kind of stuff. They certainly weren't building pirate fleets, those folk. Nina says the Red Death sounds like Ebola turned up to 11. Ebola is known as a hemorrhagic fever. You bleed through your orifices. <laughs> and it also has a red rash that can peel. So that sounds uh, like the shredding skin that happens with the Red Death. But let's not linger on that. <laughs> let's talk about the coming of the Corsairs. This describes the era after the doom after the fall of Gagasos and the Red Death. And the quote describes the intermediary period as well. For a century thereafter, the basilisks were shunned. It was not until the coming of the Corsairs that men returned to the isles once again. The Carthine pirate, Zandaro Zore, was the first to raise his banner there, using the stones he found on Axe Isle to erect a grim black fort above his anchorage. The men of the Brotherhood of Bones soon followed, settling at the western end of the chain upon the Isle of Flies. From these bases, Zandaro and the Brotherhood were perfectly placed to prey upon merchantmen rounding the shattered, smoking remnants of the Valyrian Peninsula. Within half a century, almost every one of the basilisks was home to a nest of corsairs. A place not exactly disease-free, wiped out by a particularly bad one, plus there had been such long-standing Valyrian rule, combines to keep the place empty for a while. But of course, given it had always been such a great spot for piracy, given its natural features, the Corsairs returned. Even though they didn't have Valyrian shipping and Giscari, nearly as much Giscari shipping to prey on, it's still a center of cross-SOC shipping and some Westerosi shipping. You've still got the Jade Gates nearby. You still have Karth, Ashai, Morak, Volantis, Lees. There's still plenty going on, even if it's not quite as robust as the days of old Valyria. So when is this time? Correspond to Westeros. We're saying for about a century after the Red Death. Where does that put us in Westerosi history? Roughly the late 70s, right? So roughly when Prince Viserys, the future King Viserys I, when he was born. Roughly around there. So this is the time of Jaehaerys and Alessand still. About the middle of their reign. They've been king-queen for about 20, maybe 30 years. Because we might be talking about the late 70s here, give or take. So it sounds more like the return of the Corsairs rather than the coming of the Corsairs. But it seems that some things were different. Regardless, this is the current era we're in. The last 220, 230 years or so, there isn't any sort of major milestone that I know of to separate it. So this is where we're at. When Tyrion and Makoro pass by the smoking ruins of Valyria, a similar thing is pointed out as far as staying as far away from as possible. For superstitious reasons, a lot of captains stay away from Valyria, even though it's, it just looks intimidating. It's not any more dangerous to a ship than as far as we know. They don't even like to be a sight of it. 
But the farther out of sight they get of it, the closer you get to the basilisk isles, which runs you into the risk of actual danger rather than superstitious danger, which is pirates and corsairs and things like that. And of course, that is what happens. The Salisbury Corin does go <laughs> get hit by a storm and becomes becalmed and a slaver does come upon them. It's a Giscari slaver, not a Corsair from the Basilisks, but that was like a random encounter. It could have been any old pirate ship could have stumbled upon them. So it could have been a Basilisk Isle ship. So what do these new folks do? They settle in there. They're like, what do we do about this toadstone? We just ignore it. No one apparently settled on, on that isle right now. But we have this Zandaro Zore guy who takes the old black stones and makes a new fortress out of it. This Brotherhood of Bones that was in the quote that comes along right after. That sounds vaguely like the Skull Island stuff. Like what we're told about with Skull Islands, we're going to talk about that in a minute with the Dark Gods, but keep, so keep that in mind. I wonder if there's anything unique about Carthine pirates. This is on Zandaro Zore guy. What we see of Karth when Danny's there is that they're very proud of their culture because they're so old. There's almost like an arrogance about them. I, I don't know. I, I'm not, sh- I wouldn't say that this every single Carthine has this attitude. Danny deals with a mostly really rich highborn people. So it's not like she's dealing with the rank and file like peasants or whatever. So it's not necessarily something that everyone would have this attitude of. But if that's any indicator at all, you might think these, some of these Carthine pirates might be like, yeah, we, we deserve this. We're entitled to, you know, we're the oldest around here. This should be our, this should be our territory. This should be our shipping region. What other black stones got used there? Was there any, I wonder if did the black stones building a fort out of that, did that, was there side effects for them or did that like screw their, is it like building a, a house on with too much asbestos in it or with lead pipes or something? Is it the equivalent like that? Like where people slowly get unhealthy and sick and maybe that's why Zondarozore was never heard from again. Eventually there's no more legends about him. I mean, lots of pirate captains just kind of up and vanish one day. You know, it's kind of the nature of the beast, but it's pretty cool to think about. And it's a segue to the dark gods worship there. This is maybe my favorite section of this episode. Whatever happened with the doom, I'm less scared of that than the Brotherhood of Bones on the Island of Flies. I'm staying away from that. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that, man. Yeah, (laughs) both the people and the disease sounds awful. The flies. Yeah, I don't I don't need those flies. Just the flies alone are pretty scary. Yeah, I've also wondered about the. The black stones, it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like there's evidence of this in a different story as we know, but I've wondered if there's maybe some radiation that comes from it. Uranium in it or something like that. Other people have made similar suggestions, Sean. So that's cool that you thought of that without having read that elsewhere. But like it's at the base of Old Tower and it's not like everyone dies around Old Tower, yeah, right? So true, true. Old Tower. A, you mean High Tower. High Tower. High Tower. It is an Old Tower. You're right. <laughs> it is an Old Tower. Right. It is a High Town. <laughs> yeah. So one of the indicators that there's a newish culture though is think about this, like these new customs that we're about to describe with these dark gods. Did the Corsairs bring this with them? Did they start it? Or is this something old that's been there a long time that they believe these gods rule this area and they don't want to disturb the deities that live in this region? That's how a lot of superstitions work after all, right? Like we could Victorian Victorian's like, well, the gods of this area need to be placated. You know, it's like these seas are different. He just, whatever supernatural being needs to be placated, Victorian is here for it. And his belief system is a little more normal than I think would be a little more common just belief in a variety of gods, willingness to believe rather than a, is that God real? Like, come on. You know, that's kind of like what we're more like, like that's all made up, right? But someone like Victorian and a lot of other natives of Planetos would be open to the idea of just about any deity actually existing. 
So keep that all in mind when you hear this quote and when we discuss this stuff here. Many of the Corsairs cling to the gruesome custom of festooning the hulls and masts of their ships with severed heads to strike fear into their foes. The heads dangle from hemp and rope until all the flesh has rotted off them, whereupon they are replaced with fresh ones. Mm -hmm. Rather than consign the skulls to the sea, however, the Corsairs will deliver them to Skull Isle as an offering to some dark god. Thus it is that great piles of yellowed skulls can be seen lining the shores of this small, windswept, uninhabited rock. That somewhat implies the idea that this has been a practice there for a long time. Like the Corsairs show up again and they're like, look at all these skulls here. This is weird. Uh, Maybe uh, we should keep doing this. (laughs) Maybe we should. Someone was placating some dark god here. I don't want to find out what happens if you don't keep placating this dark god. So let's keep putting skulls here. <laughs> Can you imagine that whole concept of fresh heads? They keep it till the head's not fresh. Like you hear that, like changing out the rushes or I don't even want to see a head or... if it's not fresh. <laughs> <laughs> Shay has a is very proud when it comes to the head display. She's not. Yeah. She's not about to stay at a hotel. I, I switch heads. our heads out every day. <laughs> 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 You're so high maintenance. <laughs> head maintenance. <laughs> You got to imagine this, I don't know, the mentality that that generates or fosters in a pirate crew or whatever. Like, you got to be desensitized to the value of life, you know? Yeah. It only takes a few people that are, like, supernatural about it. They're, like, really freaked out about about whatever the local customs are and not following them. And a lot of pirate captain types will be like, well, they don't necessarily believe in this stuff. But they need their crew to be comfortable. They need morale. And so that means bowing to whatever belief whatever fears they may have assuaging that whatever that cover it just cover that base so your men can go on pirating <laughs> without yeah without being worried about that so this so th- it is possible this is a continuation of older beliefs that maybe they found the skulls there and just continued that practice but maybe they started maybe they're like let's this is time to start a new practice let's I don't know, let's drop skulls on we'll call it skull island yeah because like could that have been the name thousands of years ago i mean if there were skulls on it sure yeah. but I don't know. It reminds me of Life of Brian, by the way. I just can't imagine. Like, we must gather up the skulls and <laughs> discard them. <on> the... <laughs> no, no, no. We must put the skulls on our ships. No, no, no. <laughs> imagine those arguments. Yeah, like the big skull convention. Like, what do we do? <laughs> this is today. We will decide once and for all what are done with all the heads. We must hold the skulls above our heads in our left hand. No, it's no, no, right our right hand. hand. <laughs> <laughs> you hold it by the hair. No, you hold it by the ear. <laughs> So you wonder if this is a misinterpretation somehow. It's so vague, just some dark god. I mean, maybe there's multiple dark gods. Maybe there's... Maybe they're not that dark. Yeah, it's like, why am I dark just because I like skulls and severed head? Come on, that's... You're being judgmental. Hmm. What do you want to do? Bury him in the ground? Ooh, like a light god? <laughs> it, it does. Yeah, yeah, right. It doesn't necessarily make sense to me that a whole bunch of Corsairs repopulate these islands coming from a whole bunch of different places. And this is, this belief comes from multiple places. So it kind of seems like they adopted the local cause. That's, that makes logistically fits better for me. How about you, Sean? Does that, does that work for you? Or what do you think? Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. It's also, I think it might be, there's some crossover with superstition and religion, but religion usually is tied a little more to a certain area or culture or time period, whereas superstitions can transcend all that. 
you know? Yeah. And this seems more superstitious than religious to me. There's always, yeah, there's always some God that needs appeasing. I think, I think you're a very superstitious person living in a setting like this. You would think, yeah, no matter where you are, there's gods that, and they always need appeasing. (laughs) And the fact that the place is so dangerous to us, you might think, oh, that's just the proof of all the different flora and fauna and the way jungles work and things like that. But no, to a superstitious person, like, this is proof that there's gods here that need placating. The fact that so many people die here, it proves that. It's not proof of diversity in the flora and fauna and this and that. I mean, it could be both to them. But to them, the thing that matters most is the superstition and the, yeah. But I'm saying it doesn't necessarily have to be connected to a god. Oh, sure. Okay, yeah. Tap the roof of your car when you go through a yellow light or something like that. It's not associated with a god. It's just like a habit, a belief or something that they might just believe it will bring them good fortune. Hmm. to drop these skulls off, whether it's a God giving them good fortune or not. Like some people might believe it's this God or that God. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, I guess sometimes it's, it's like a spirit, like you're, you're, which are like not a deity, but like some sort of invisible being that is not as powerful as a deity, but still can affect your life. Yeah, those are, there's, there's levels, like you say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's think too about the Corsairs and what they might do outside of their region. These, some of these guys might be connected. Like Zandar Azor, he came from Karth. He might have had connections to the nobility there. He might have known people. He, may, he, he, got, he didn't arrive and then build his fortune. He showed up with ships set up as a pirate ba- set up a pirate base. Like he didn't rise from low-ranking pirates. Well, maybe he did, but he didn't do that in the Basilisk Isles. He, did, he, mm-hmm. he made his fortune elsewhere and then set up there like to establish himself in a new zone to make even more money. Dynasties and bloodlines last longer on Planetos than they seem to do in real life. But even in George's world, pirate dynasties don't last very long because same reason Dothraki calls. And Kalasars are constantly reforming and falling apart. It's, it's hard to pass power onto your heir when people are ruled purely by strength. What I'm getting at, though, is that these people like Zandaro and others, just because they're pirates in the Basilisk Isles, doesn't mean they aren't connected to powerful interests elsewhere. And what can you do with powerful interests elsewhere? Get tips on who's sailing where, when, and with what. Like, for example, when the Maiden's Day cattle show happened in Westeros, a bunch of highborn women were going over there to try to marry the king, to try to catch the attention of the king. Several Volantine women went over there, but they never made it because they were captured by corsairs from the Basilisk Isles. Maybe it was random. Maybe they were just looking, patrolling along a trade route and... grabbed this ship and had no idea what they were going to find in the, in the hold when they opened it up. But quite possibly someone told them, they were like, there's going to be some highborn girls here. You can ransom them. There's lots of money to be gotten from their families, way more money than you could normally capture by just some goods, potentially. These are really well-connected families that have a lot of money, etc. I've brought up many times the value of intelligence. You'd rather have one ship that knows where the target is than 10 ships that don't know where the target is. Yeah, you're just sailing out there just hoping you stumble on loot. Yeah, like this, certainly in the Caribbean when the Dutch, French, and English were always trying to figure out when the Spanish treasure fleets, when they were scheduled or when they'd be leaving with a haul to go back to Spain. Because if they got out to the open ocean, if they got out of the Caribbean, chances of catching them are like pretty remote because they're in the Atlantic Ocean. Like, how are you going to find someone out there? But if they're in the Caribbean, you got a chance. If you catch them near the source, 
And there's an example like this. It's not of loot or of treasure, at least not of monetary treasure. But when Bitter Steel was captured at the end of the third Blackfire Rebellion, he was not executed. He was allowed to take the black, which apparently was a mistake. He was on ship being sent to the wall and he was rescued like some Mission Impossible style action scene or something. His compadres just sidle up to the ship and pull him off of it. And he runs off into the sunset to fight more Blackfire Rebellion. It's wild stuff. So someone tipped off the Golden Company, apparently, that Bittersteel's ship was going on a certain day and they knew to be looking for it. It can't have been random, right? So this is the same. This is that same concept where you know about whereabouts when a ship is going to be leaving, what its route roughly is, what the cargo is. Tell that to pirates. Get a cut. Organized crime in a nutshell there. I mean, that's that's a stuff for happening. You can see in real why world. Euron might want to you can see why Euron might want to cut the tongues out of his sailors too. Like Oh wow, good point. <laughs> they can't they can't tell people in ports like when they're leaving or what their cargo is or what their route is or anything like that. Even accidentally, they could just they just can't. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Loose lip sink ships. Not if they don't have tongues. <laughs> so yeah, syndicate, a criminal syndicate built off tipping off Corsairs. That kind of thing happens in the real world. But yeah, I, I figure it's probably going to happen in Planetos. And if it does, the Basilisk Isles are where, and the Stepstones are the places where that kind of thing would happen. The Basilisk Isles, probably more than the Stepstones because the Basilisk Isles is more remote, more hiding places, more inhospitable to outsiders. So until something comes along to shake this state of affairs up, it's going to stay like this. The Basilisk Isles are going to continue to be dangerous decades and decades, if not centuries, until there's civilization there or something. until. It gets cleaned out till people start living there and pushing back against nature. Ah. So arguably, it hasn't changed that much over thousands and thousands of years because when it has changed, those changes have been reversed. The powers of nature couldn't keep... It's like nature won there, where nature failed to win in Westeros. Humankind overwhelmed nature in Westeros. The children lost. They're still there, but they lost to humanity. The old gods... Most of the trees were cut down. The giants were pushed aside. If, if, if there's a victor between humanity and the old gods and the children, it's humanity. But in the Basilisk Isles and Sathorius proper, if anyone's winning, it's nature. Perhaps because vaguely like Westeros, vaguely like the old gods and the children of the forest, it's not just natural. It's supernatural. We just don't know what these supernatural powers are in Sothorios and the Basilisk Isles. But these dark gods that we just touched on, the ones the locals are sacrificing to to keep them at bay, you might sacrifice to them too if you lived there and they'd been around for so long. You don't argue with something that's been around for 10,000 years. You just do what it says, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, if that's what's how your belief system works. Mm-hmm. Also, at some point after human activity returned to the region post-Red Death, the Ironborn would have started coming here again, too, because if you recall from our episode on the Red Kraken and in other places we've mentioned this, Aegon f- forbade Reaving, Aegon the Conqueror forbade Reaving in the Seven Kingdoms. Of course he did. And the first Lord of the Iron Isles post-conquest, I believe it was Vicon Greyjoy, went with this. He's like, yes, obey Aegon. We're not going up against the dragon again. He came here and torched us. He proved he could beat us pretty easily. We're not going to stand up to that. But, as we know, the Basilisk Isles are far, far away. You can go pillage and loot to your heart's content out there. Egg on the Conqueror, nor any of his descendants would have cared about that. But, of course, 
<laughs> no one was going to go there when it was still empty after the Red Death. So there was still a, a period in between where there wasn't much reason to go there, probably. But now, again, there's reasons to go there. In current times, you have we hear of places like Black Pudding, Horrors Gash, Sty, and Port Plunder, which are movable bases where they pirates set up slave marts or trading stations and then move them after a while after they become too well known after the authorities or the pirate hunters or the higher ups in Vol- uh, Volantis or Lease or whoever are, start to learn about it, they move. But they or even other pirates, they, they might point. become susceptible to other organized criminals. You're totally right. Yeah, they're all enemies. <laughs> they're all threats. You're right. So Corianne Wilde, or whoever it was that wrote A Caution for Young Girls, claims to have been a plaything of a Corsair queen in the Basilisk Isles. Now, a lot of what she wrote is a little sketchy, but still, just the idea of a Corsair queen there is kind of cool. Makes me think of Ching Shi, the, the Chinese pirate queen. Yeah, so I wonder what that whole deal was, but that sounds pretty cool. What kind of story that was? I'm sure that's a that has a lot of potential for a story. Mm-hmm. Racalio Rendoon may have finished his career there. Not entirely clear, but he certainly did a stint over there. And that guy, as capable as he was, may have he would have fit right in. I think you know, <laughs> men would have liked fighting for him. He would have been recognized as a guy to sail under in that in that space. All right, let's talk about. Our last section here is recent time, most recent times and outlook for the future. When Ariane, Ariane Martel and company are sitting around the fire prior to their Marcella plan, Marcella plan going up in smoke, they're discussing current events from around the world. And here's a slice of that. If the sailors could be believed, the East was seething with wonders and terrors, a slave revolt in Astapor, dragons in Karth, Grey Plague in E.T., a new Corsair king had risen in the Basilisk Isles and raided Tall Tree's town. And in Kohor, followers of the Red Priests had rioted and tried to burn down the Black Goat. And the Golden Company broke its contract with Mir, just as the Mirmen were about to go to war with Lys. Yeah, lots of stuff happening there. What's interesting, a couple things interesting about that, I suppose, is that we keep hearing about Corsair kings and queens. Some of them come from elsewhere, like Sapo's son set himself up there. But some of them emerged from within. And you don't really see that with the Stepstones. Pretty much all the kings of the Stepstones came from elsewhere to conquer it and then held on to it as long as they could and then failed to hold on to it for the long term. It's part of the nature of the area. I wonder why that is, but it does seem to be a pattern that I've noticed a difference in. Saying that makes me think I'm less likely to be on to something, but what's the timing here? Is there any chance that Bahrain Waters is this new Corsair King? No, because this is... Pretty much, this is happening. This is Feast for Crows, which is when Orane runs off to take the okay. ships in the first place. This would be a little, the timeline wouldn't really support that. But there wouldn't be enough time for him to sail all the way there, rise to power, yeah. news to get back. Yeah. He doesn't take the ships, I think, until the end of the book or near the end of the book. And this is before the end of the book, although the chapters don't okay. perfectly line up with each other. But it is, it's a good idea, though, thinking along those lines. We're, last we hear, he's in the Stepstones and not the Bathos Kyles. But that is, it's not 100% sure. He could have moved on. This gossip around a campfire could be inaccurate, too. They might mean the Stepstones and it's really the Basilisk Isles. You're right, you're right. That's true. vice versa. So we have Tall Trees Town is in the Summer Islands. That's one of the most important cities in Summer Isles. So the fact that some Corsair king raided that is a pretty big deal. And it means they have a, probably have a substantial navy. It's probably a pretty substantial force, pretty large. Tall Trees Town is also where they have the trees that have all the historical carvings all over them. They're huge trees. One day we'll cover the Summer Islands and that'll be, that'll be a fun thing to talk about. 
it was raiders from the basilisks who captured Masande and her three brothers from Nath and sold them in Astapor. Now, she has three brothers. One of them died in the training because that's the Unsullied training for you. A Corsair king pondered buying 100 Unsullied just before Danny came along to buy them all. Not the first Corsair king to use slave soldiers. We've talked about that. That's probably like, we talk about pirate ships. And again, another reason not to think of pirate ships in the Basilisk Isles as being similar to the ones in the, in the Caribbean with their democracy and their voting on captains when you have slave soldiers in play. <laughs> like some, these, these guys are definitely not voting for their captain. Or their king, that's for sure. You don't, vote, you don't vote for king. But they might have some strange women lying in ponds distributing swords. So you don't vote for kings? <laughs> no, in, in Monty king. Python, you don't. And prom, prom kings and queens, you do. <laughs> prom kings and prom queens, you do. That's true. That's, Imagine that's if like, that was the case for like the for high school, for like the prom king and queen. You had to like claim it yourself. It wasn't <laughs> yeah. a vote. Your father had to be the prom king. So. <laughs> I have a claim to the, the prom throne <laughs> through my great-grandfather. <laughs> there's a lot of incest in this problem (laughs) oh boy wow this is this we you never know where the discussions will go on history of westeros podcast they may go to the basilisk isles they may go to your local prom (laughs) where they uncover allegations of incest (laughs) yes yes a little loopy here so what's funny about that exchange about the corsair king is we know it's true because Krasny's Monaclas is trying to con Danny. He's like trying to exaggerate and, and is like, he wasn't, he was going to buy like less or something. I forget what she says, but she does acknowledge that it, that it did happen. Like this Corsair King was there thinking of buying. He just exaggerated how likely oh. he was to make the purchase. <laughs> so imagine that different Corsair Kings have different setups to their own Navy and military. They may have like large ships. They may have small ships. They may have some of each. They may have slave soldiers. They may not. Lots of variety there. Sort of like a Corsair king might have multiple Corsairs under their command. Yes, too, you like know? A co- they're like a Commodore where they'd have... Mo- yeah, it wouldn't just be... Because a captain is just one ship, but like if you're a Commodore or an Admiral, yeah, you have multiple ships. A king, you would think, has lots of ships. Yeah, yeah. yeah you've been talking a lot about... Or maybe control over a town or a territory. Maybe they're collecting taxes, Yes, cetera. protection money. Protection money, for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, y'all have been talking a lot about Corsairs. Corsair. Right? But like, when are you going to talk about fine airs? <laughs> I think a lot about Harold Finehair. I wonder if the word Corsair... Of course. I know it's French, but I wonder if it has some origin in Viking... <laughs> that was actually a really funny song, Finehair, you're right. It might have gone the other way. The, the Viking stuff may have spread to you know? come from yeah. France. It's an older language, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> the current Shrouded Lord on Dagger Lake who sails up and down the Rhoyne is a Corsair from the Basilisk Isles, according to Halden. Because it's like, it's like the Dread Pirate Roberts, where many people have had that identity. So the current one apparently is a Corsair king. Or not a Corsair king, but a, a Corsair from the Basilisk Isles, who is now the Shrouded Lord. It was Corsairs who struck the ship Quentin and his group were on, the one that killed his, half of his party. Now those were, mm-hmm. as opposed to pirates, he specifically called them. I mean, he also called them pirates, but he specifically said the Corsairs came, snuck aboard at dawn or whatever and they were pretty wealthy because one of them they were like the ones that they killed they killed 12 of the corsairs in the process of driving them off and like one of them it was like had a bunch of rings tumco low is a former slave born in the basilisk isles extremely talented swordsman according to barrison so talented that he calls him the best natural swordsman he's seen since jamie lannister which is 
mean, Jamie's like a generational talent with the sword. So that's that's a big thing. And it's coming from Barristan. This isn't some guy who's like, oh, he looks really good. No, this is a guy who knows swordsmanship inside and out, like, and is not likely to give that kind of compliment. I'd have seen more people. He's gone to a bunch of tournaments. He's been, yeah. he's done some traveling, you know. Yeah, Nina agrees that this is a huge, huge point of praise. Look out for Tom Colo. We once had a, a poll about him on the, not a poll, but a discussion about him on the Facebook group. And I think we dubbed him either the Basilisk Knight or the Knight of the Basilisks, which is the same basic name, which is a cool-ass name. And, and it, he might be the first ever person from the Basilisk Isles to be knighted, like the first native of the Basilisk Isles, the first person to be born in the Basilisk Isles to be knighted, which is to be the first person to do something in that world is pretty cool. <laughs> like there's just so many things because it's, 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 it, history moves slower in Planetos than it seems to in our world. So being the first to do something is, is harder. <laughs> so what happened to that Iron Fleet? What happened to those ships? Only nine of the 33 ships made it or 33, 30, 35, something like that. That's wild. Including the leader, the guy that Victorian put in charge was Red Ralph Stonehouse. And they were the Iron Fleet's swiftest ship. So it wasn't like they ran into something they couldn't get away from. It was, I don't know. They were told to pay the iron price for provisions along the way. But the price was too high, I guess. <laughs> I mean, yikes. They just didn't, they disappeared. There used to be a theory that Red Ralph was actually working for Euron and that's why he didn't show up. But I've reviewed that a lot. Red Ralph is like constantly loyal to Victorian and is and, and was one of the people that that shouted down Euron that was like, oh, you know, we're not going to we don't want to go west, east. Screw that. He was against Euron at almost every turn. I mean, maybe that was on purpose to make it look that way, but I don't think that's that's, that's too much of a stretch in my in my book. But theorize as you like, my friends. I think it's most likely that they just drank bad water. They went to shore for provisions. And just got dysentery, you know. Maybe, maybe they, yeah, maybe they got into a fight with some people to to steal some stuff, and it was, yeah, there were more bad guys than they thought, more enemies than they thought, and yeah, or maybe just a storm, but nothing to do with the Basilisk Isles directly. But I, I prefer to believe it was maybe something. They didn't put any skulls feature. on Skull Island. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Dark, Dark gods, gods made a mistake. Yeah. You didn't drop any. They didn't drop any skulls off. Like the locals are like, are you kidding me? That's yeah, a big mistake. Say? You deserve to get dysentery. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all right, let's go there now and put a few extra skulls just in case, you know. <laughs> so let's let's have a little summary here. It sounds not unlike the Iron Islands of the past. A little more anarchic, a little less united, but Red in a different climate. <laughs> a different climate, less remote, like more central, but still pretty remote, but more central. Dark gods, check. Possibly even some of the same if they're if their dark gods have the same sort of undersea or underwater origin or fear of the sea type style origin that may relate to beings that really did emanate from the sea. Individual kings on each island. That's how the Ironborn used to be. And they still have that sort of, they still have the rock king attitude towards some things, even if it's not formally done. Sometimes, even in the Ironborn's history, pre-Aegon, they would have times where the Isles were united under one king, which is similar to like the, a king beyond the wall or a king of the Basilisk Isles. Slavery slash thraldom is a big part of their economy, also the same. And obviously the piracy stuff, obviously the shipborne economy, taking, stealing, and all that. As for Basilisks, again, we throughout our charting a course through history of the Basilisk Isles, we weren't really able to figure out a time when it seemed most likely for the Basilisks to have gone extinct, because frankly, we don't think they are. <laughs> Again, with the way the maesters look at things, 
and the way George likes to write, I, I bet there's still basilisks on the basilisk isles. And there's definitely still basilisks on the Sothorios proper. So they're not extinct. And in Yi-T. So they're definitely not extinct one way or the other. It's a pretty amazing location. I wonder what value it will have in the future of the story. Winter won't affect it as much as other places nearly as much. So that's kind of an interesting aspect to consider with all the tropical kind of locations like the Summer Isles, Nath, and Sothorios and the Basilisk Isles. If winter strikes, will people flee there? Will, that, will it be worse there? <laughs> will it be better to face winter than going there? I don't know, but it's an interesting question. And I do think that it will continue to play a role in the story as a mysterious, deadly region that offers a quite a bit, as well as role-playing opportunities, perhaps. <laughs> I'm really talking myself into that. One day, maybe. <laughs> Someone in the chat said that they were going to take inspiration from something you said. They're working on their session right now. Oh, great. Well, I'm very pleased to hear that. It makes mm -hmm. me feel very happy to, that people are taking this and, and using it. You know, we have friends time. who do like D&D &D sessions and role-playing like on Discord and stuff like, you know, the Radio Westeros Discord, they're into some stuff like that. Anyways, if that's something you want to do is you could probably find a group of our friends that, that are into it. Yeah, I've been, I've been kicking the idea around for ever since the Gagasos episode, yeah. which is years ago. Would you want to do it online, like on Discord? Probably. We could make our own little channel on, in, the, in our Discord, and you could do one, organize one there if you wanted to. Well, weigh in if you're interested, yeah. folks. If, you're, if that's something that would, you'd be interested in, the more people that, that say yes, the more likely I am to do it. So that, that, would, that would motivate me for sure. So it's a good thing to help us wrap up this episode on. Mm. One note from earlier, I, I did a search of ice and fire for hurricane. Zero results. Uh -huh. No hurricane, no monsoon, no typhoon, no whatever other... It's, it's, I think it's just storm. I think it's the only... I think he just uses storm. Yeah. I wonder if he wants to avoid those words. Like hurricane might have like specific meanings of wind speeds and he doesn't know enough and doesn't want to get caught up yeah. in it. And typhoon might imply certain culture and he, he's just keeping it generic to yeah. avoid problems down the road. But You're Probably right. Yeah, that way he doesn't write himself in a corner, which he didn't do with Pirate and Corsair, but... Cor <laughs> It doesn't matter. <laughs> also, I'm like, no, I'm, yeah. or, I only noticed that, but I, I don't, I don't criticize. I'm like, yeah, it's, it happens in the real world too. So George is doing what everybody else did. Yeah. It's all good. A trivia question. Remember the question was, which of the Basil Skiles did George jokingly put himself on while riding a Dance with Dragons? The answer is Skull Isle. He joked that a Dance with Dragons was Kong, King Kong. Meaning he joked like it was King Kong and King Kong lived on Skull Isle. And he once pointed out, there's a blog post you could find where he says, I'm on Skull Isle wrestling with Kong or something like that. There you go. Meta well, trivia. Someone, I don't know if anyone guessed Skull Isle, but I do remember that Dom guessed Isle of Monkeys because son of Kong, King Kong. So had the exact reasoning he was on, right. He was on the right track. He was. <laughs> or on the right uh course he steered the right course on the island yes <laughs> that's right so as i said in the beginning we had a lot of ep episodes often lead to other topics this one in particular does quite a bit i mentioned this list plus others probably gagasos which is a bonus episode available if you subscribe to us through patreon or spotify Ten Thousand ships the nymerian episode the ibisode with gray waste tim the great empire of the dawn episode the Stepstones episode, the Valar Reredus chapters with Victorian, and uh, some of the ones with Barristan as well, since we mentioned Tumco Lowe and, and some of that stuff, although less about the actual Basilisk Isles and just more about the Basilisk Knight. And there's probably other ones that I've forgotten about that, that relate to the Basilisk Isles as well, since it's such a big topic. 
But anyway, that is it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History of Westeros. We certainly enjoyed delivering it. Thanks to Nina for her invaluable notes. Make sure to check out goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. Thanks to Joey and Jesse and Bran for our various forms of music and intros, as well to our good friend Michael Klarfeld. Next week is Thoros of Mir, the character study. That'll be fun. We had a deep world-building dive today. We'll do a deep character study next time. Do you have time to get a cat for us, Sean? It's been a couple weeks. Do I have time? We get we'll a cat. Keep, keep chatting. And we have plenty more coming. We always like to get feedback from y'all on episodes. We don't require it. We have plenty of topics we can choose on our own, but we do love hearing from y'all about what you want to hear, about what direction you want to go in. And we want to keep a variety. So yes, we want to try to look at exploring categorizations and how to do different styles oh. of things. There's a cat. Yeah, and a Rita helping Sean put the headphones Yes, we on. saw the arm of Rita. The hand oh. of Rita. Oh, <laughs> kind of like the hand of God. Yeah. But Oh, yeah, kitty, though. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, folks. We will see you all next time. Thanks again to everyone who came live, everyone who listens later. We appreciate you just as much. I appreciate you a little less. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking, y'all. I'm joking. It's a joke. Okay, okay. A shake is that tough love. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I gotta, I appreciate, I gotta I appreciate you a little bit somehow. How yeah, I appreciate the live chatters a little extra. I, <laughs> you know. Whether I, I mean, I know their names. I see their thoughts. I, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I guess people who watch later and comment, I appreciate you. You got some too. comments for you in the chat today, directed at you. And okay, actually, cool. you'll enjoy going back and seeing what people had to say. <laughs> Cool. Uh, well, we'll see you all again next week, folks. Thanks again. And you know what to do in the meantime. Valar, re-read us. <laughs> <laughs>